All right. Welcome back to the Bomb Hole, which is presented by Pub Beer. Uh, first things first, Stony Buds is actually not here this week, but he will be back shortly and uh, better than ever. So don't worry, he will be back. But temporarily, we have Mikey LeBlanc filling in for Stony Buds. So, uh, Mikey, how you doing? Fantastic. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. And uh, today in the booth, we got Circe Wallace. Circe, how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Well, we are so happy that you could join us. For the listeners that don't know who you are or familiar with your body of work, we'll call it, Circe is a super agent of snowboarding and skating, VP at Wasserman, one of the biggest agencies in the world. She's an ex-pro snowboarder, first woman with a pro model snowboard boot. She's a pioneer of Agents in Action Sports, co-founder of the Natural Selection Tour, a pivotal part of the foundation of our culture. Circe is a badass. She is a walking masterclass in action sports education. It's gonna be a fun one. We got a good we got a good brain to pick today about all things action sports. But uh, first things first, where are you from and how did you fall in love with snowboarding? Um, I'm originally from Eugene, Oregon, uh, and snowboarding. I really discovered. I mean, I was a skater, so board sports were kind of. Um, an early, I don't know, I felt like skateboarding, I, I was a bit of a, a, a troubled kid and skateboarding gave me an outlet and a community. Um, and so I had a neighbor who was kind of a trust fund kid who named Thatcher and he had a car and a house and a bunch of snowboards and um, he took me up to Hoodoo Mountain for my first shred. Uh, I remember I was on a Burton Woody, and I had I was I had workmen boots, and I had put Air Jordans inside of the men's workman boot, like kind of as my bladder, and then duct taped them. And then the most vivid memory of that day was that uh, it was kind of a fun day. It was kind of warm and slushy. Must have been spring. But uh, the chairlift hit me on the back of the head uh, unloading, and I bit all the way through my tongue, and I was just spitting up blood everywhere. But I was having so much fun that I kept riding for the rest of the afternoon. And I remember just feeling like this is – I love this. This is – I was an angsty kid. I felt a lot of anger and frustration in my adolescence and being in nature and with my friends felt very, and it just felt, I don't know, uh, it felt kind of a way for me to express that angst uh, and it dissipated while being on the mountain and I could put my energy into something that felt like really good. Love that. I've heard it uh, described as a vehicle for self-expression, which I think fits in regards to snowboarding really well. Uh, And I'm also curious about your parents. I've heard you mention that you're kind of had like a bit of a bohemian upbringing. 
and how that shaped you? Yeah, so both of my parents are artists. Um, I'm the only offspring of my mother and father, so they both remarried and had kids. But uh, my mom is like a visual artist. She's kind of a renowned Northwest artist who um, has primary... She's worked in a bunch of mediums, but, you know, art was very much um, her passion. And, you know, she's uh, still... Uh, an active artist and then my dad is a musician and a playwright so um, I definitely you know Eugene Oregon in the 70s (laughs) was definitely uh, a very bohemian time uh, very counterculture you know they were very um, creative and also um, I lived in a commune essentially for the first bit of my life while they were still together they got divorced I think when I was three and the commune was basically it was called Kintyre and it was on the outskirts of town near the railroad yard Um, but it was like a beautiful old home and it was full of all of these creative types and I I certainly think um, made a very early impression on me in uh, the creative arts and uh, a bohemian lifestyle. (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, So, I mean, it's interesting for me because you started out to me in the arts world with snowboarding, then you took such a strong business approach later on. Um, Where do you think you picked that up? Um, I think I was always inherently um, had an aversion to the like living hand to mouth lifestyle of an artist and watching my parents struggle as struggling artists and also as, uh, you know, kind of counterculture hippies. Um, I always knew kind of intrinsically that I was going to have to earn my own way and I wanted nice things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so early in adolescence, I really realized that like, I was going to have to get work or jobs, you know, to get the things that I wanted or go to concerts or, you know, whatever. I was kind of on my own. Um, And not that my parents didn't totally love me. I have, um, you know, I have a a loving relationship with my family. Um, But we were just poor. And so it was like I knew very early on that I wanted nice things and I was going to do the work um, and that I didn't want to be an artist. (laughs) (laughs) And it's interesting that you're helping artists make their money. It feels very full circle. Yeah, Yeah, it really does in that way. And it's funny. um, I was just talking to Trevor Andrew the other day and I kind of had this epiphany like, oh, right, this is kind of where... This is this is part of my journey, is now um, helping facilitate opportunity for yeah. these creatives. Now, this is a topic we always bring up on the show, and it's fun to pick everybody's brain. And you have people that you represent that are in, you know, the Olympics and all these, and you also have people that film video parts. and And from your perspective, I'm really curious as if you view snowboarding as more of an art form or a sport. I think it's both, honestly. Like for me, in my own um, space and time on the hill, like it feels very viscerally creative. Like I can express myself. I've always been able to. 
Um, and there's a lot of room for that in snowboarding um, as opposed to other sports, but inevitably with Olympic inclusion and, and, you know, competition has always been a part of our sport. So <laughs> I think uh, it's unique in that um, it can straddle both of those kind of genres of art and sport and what is what makes it so interesting, like the innovation of tricks or the creative expression. Um, and especially if it's accurately judged, the more creative you are, you know, or stylistically um, expressing yourself, you know, hopefully that gives you an advantage in the sport realm, which I think is unique. Yeah. Great answer. Well, let's, before we get into, you know, your, your post snowboard career, we got to talk about your snowboard career and how you went from, uh, biting through your tongue <laughs> and bleeding and falling in love with snowboarding to, to sponsorship. Fill fill in the gap there for us. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, this was late eighties, early nineties, and we were in the very nascent stage of snowboarding becoming um, more mainstream. Um, it was still the era of sponsor me videos and, you know, we were in VHS era. So, um, I didn't have a VHS or access to such technology. So I would send out, you know, I, I had very early on been, you know, good at writing my own resume or, you know, I had worked at Starbucks and had some, you know, good work experience that allowed me enough understanding of what a you know, what a sponsor pitch looked like. Um, and also at that time I was dating Jamie Lynn and was helping him kind of put together his materials. So, you know, we kind of came up together, um, during that time. And, um, Mervyn, which was GNU LibTech at that time, um, on Lake Union, you know, flowed me boards, um, Prior to that, I was on Burton Proform with the local rep. Um, and then it just kind of evolved from there. I did okay in the Northwest Series, which was the local series of event contests uh, hosted by Bob Barcy, who was an OG, and um, Bike Factory was his local shop. <laughs> so, yeah, that was kind of how that trajectory started. And then, you know, once I had some resources, really – you know, how I was able to level up uh, in terms of sponsorship was from my job at Starbucks. I had written a, a proposal. Um, at that time, I worked at Store 10, which is crazy to think about now. They have over, I don't know, like 4,000 worldwide. Um, but I had written a proposal to my employer because I had gotten invited to the Japan World Championships and I needed a couple grand to get there. And they sponsored me and helped me um, cover my ticket to get there. And I ended up winning that contest and then came home. And then things started to happen for me. And they let me pick up shifts so I could kind of quit the nine to five um, and I could travel. And then whenever I was in town, I literally at that time, there was more stores um, and there was like seven or eight in Seattle and so I could just, you know, if people called in sick or whatever, I could just, um, 
I could call in and say, hey, I'm home for four days. And they'd be like, okay, great, go to this store. And that was cool, too, because I got to, like, make new friends and have new experiences. And also, you know, it helped me afford, you know, to continue to pursue my dream. That's so cool. And now I must say... I'm not a fan of Starbucks, (laughs) and I'm really mad at Howard Schultz for trying to be a union buster, Um, and he sold the Sonics, so. (laughs) So Starbucks, no fly zone. No, and they could, like, single-handedly change the single-use plastics problem in the world and refuse to, so. Margins over people. I like that. We're going to get into all that stuff. I mean, we could get into it now, but I feel like you... You know, let's just get into it because I'm I'm super curious about this. I, I you know, you got a good brain like Circe that knows understands things. You got to ask your questions. Like I feel like you see the playing field as far as action sports or specifically snowboarding from a higher level. Maybe we're all at ground level. You're at three thousand feet. Like you understand how the ecosystem of snowboarding works. So so what do we got to do on a broader level to not cannibalize our culture? Ooh, that's a <laughs> hard hitting loaded question. question. Yeah. Well, okay, let's just get something out of the way real quick. I am like fundamentally an anti-capitalist who really likes nice things. So I'm kind of a walking hypocrisy. So um, I'm very aware of my hypocrisy. Um, I think the thing that allows me the freedom um, to feel good about what I do, which is extracting dollars on is is because it's on behalf of people I love and that I am helping facilitate a dream for a kid, regardless of who it is that they want to ride for, whether I agree with their or the corporation's um, practices or otherwise, it's my job to make sure that that individual extracts the most opportunity out of this window of time that they have. So that's how I reconcile my own hypocrisy. Um, And so I think, you know, if you look at the growth of snowboarding um, as a good thing, but it's also a bad thing in that we've had, you know, all of this market conglomeratization, if that's a word, um, where corporations have come in and whether it's venture capital or they're a publicly held company where shareholders come first, Inevitably, with that, um, some of the nuances are what's really ultimately important from a community or a holistic perspective gets lost. And so I think the best way that we um, can challenge that is to be very conscious of where we spend our money and that we support either rider-owned brands um, or brands that are really supporting the space and the community and the members of it and not just making uh, decisions based on shareholder value or profit margin. I think triple bottom line businesses are going to become increasingly important. And I think that it is so critically important for us as consumers to really vote with our dollars and make sure that we're spending with brands um, that are aligned with that. Yeah, I couldn't agree. Agree more. Very well said. I mean, there's so many great small brands um, that I can think of that are just mom and pop out of garages in skating and snowboarding. Um, do you have any favorites currently? Or? Oh, goodness, yes. I mean, so many. I mean, I even look at, like, you know, OG brands like Soltech mm-hmm. that essentially got crushed by, 
you know, the Adidas and uh, Nike SB entry into the marketplace. Um, and it is a little bit of a scorched earth scenario if you look at how much they spent on entering the market um, and then removing themselves from the market. And I think that was really damaging to mm -hmm. us. And so, you know, I really love Don Brown and, and what they've done at Soltech. I think that they're, um, they are a core brand. Um, I might not totally agree with all of the decisions that they make, but they're still privately held. And mm -hmm. I think that that's important. Um, obviously, you know, Mervin, yep. I love those guys. Those guys are like family. They make the best boards. They are, um, they've worked so hard. Everyone's still there from Mike to Pete to Postulus. Like, you know, they're all Barrett. They're all just, um, <laughs> I had to hit that with an air horn. Maybe a double air horn. <laughs> yeah. That's super. Uh, well, yeah, we got, we went, we doubled up for Mervin. <laughs> well, and they've, you know, they've struggled a lot to, you know, kind of challenge, um, you know, some of the bigger players that have come in and, and waved their, um, dollars around or good, or, good word choice yeah <laughs> all right for somebody that doesn't understand economics uh, asking for a friend <laughs> um can you just like dumb down why it's important to not support the conglomerates because they don't care they don't care about snowboarding they i mean all they care about is either share price or bottom line and that's just not enough, you know, like we're all humans. And I think part of the problem that we have just as a society, you know, we went through an industrialization and, uh, you know, we're built on capitalism and a lot of that gets lost. Like how big of a company do you need to be? You know, let's support cottage industry. And I really believe in that. Um, I also love like union and capita and all those that crew are amazing and they're making good products and I think are, you know, there are snowboarders. Um, I mean, there's so many. Mm -hmm. There's so many small brands. You know, even the bomb hole. Like, you know, it's, you guys are serving the community and you're not trying to be something that you're not to make more money. It's like, how do we make this business work for us? Mm -hmm. Well, even as you're talking, I'm thinking about that, the advertising that we have to do to keep a light on our, over our heads, you know, mm -hmm. and think something, thinking about that in a more like, you know, something that serves our culture, you know, better. Like part of me, as you're talking, I'm like, how do we, how do we get more rider, uh, rider owned brands doing advertising, you know, because I think that that would be good for the culture. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you're, you're kind of helping me understand the ecosystem of snowboarding better, just listening to hear how you explain it. So thank you. Yeah. And I think we all have to kind of manage our expectations that there's a lot of small brands that like they, you know, listen, I work for individuals. I need to go extract the most money I can out of some of these larger cor corporations that need to utilize them for marketing vehicles. That's the only way that they can make a living, you know, N not that many snowboarders that are really creating legacy wealth. There's a handful, right? But by and large, you know, once you're done with your snowboard career, you're lucky if you own your home or, uh, you know, you don't get a college education. There's not a lot of, uh, opportunities outside of the industry workforce, um, but I think that's also good in that it keeps, you know, I think we're pretty good at that. I think by and large, we're good at hiring from within. Mm -hmm. Even some of the companies that I might not be aligned with in terms of their uh, 
sales objectives or growth objectives or whatever, um, I think there is a pretty robust workforce and that we try to tend to hire from within, which is cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something that brings up, I mean, I, I think it'd be interesting for riders to know if you can flip it. Like, what is the brand really looking for the rider to provide? Because I've always called it a lane if they have something unique, but I would love to hear your perspective on what a rider really is providing a brand. Well, I mean, the ultimate goal is that they help move the needle in selling a product, right? Like, direct sales conversion is the ultimate goal. Um, but also the essence of the brand um, how well they represent and are they good content creators? Are they good communicators? Are they good ambassadors? Um, and sometimes that not might not, you know, um, make total sense, but it's an emotional uh, investment. And I think that we should make more of those. I don't think it should, you know, everything's so data-driven now, right? There's no... You know, it's like we, we're losing our instinct because we're trying to make decisions based on incoming data as opposed to like, what do we really feel in our gut, which is what we have always done historically, right? It's like, well, we see things that are coming. I think that's what's interesting about action sports as a whole. We're leading trend historically. But then once you have some of these larger corporations come in and now with the rise uh, of data-informed uh, uh, business, um, we're more reactive to data. And also I think, you know, a lot of it comes down to, you know, the rise of Amazon, how we consume, um, people shopping on price, not necessarily on quality. Like, you know, we've just been conditioned, um, for immediate, um, you know, uh, happiness from a purchase and we want it now within minutes as opposed to, you know, maybe a little more scarcity or a little more value that we might put towards something. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's important for us to like take a step back every now and then be like, okay, first of all, like maybe I should make a more meaningful investment in a company that I really believe in. And it might take a little bit longer. Um, but I know that not only am I getting a product that I like and love, but I'm actually supporting the ecosystem of core brands. Mm -hmm. So well articulated. <laughs> I told wow. you, man. I told you. She's good. She's I told good. You. <laughs> I like that. I, I oftentimes think about my friend, uh, Chris Beresford. He has a small sunglass company called Dang Shades, and he runs it himself and does great for himself. You know, house is paid off, but keeps it lean and... And he told me one time, he's, you know, his ethos, and we've taken it here at the bomb hole. And he's always saying, how do I be not like Amazon? In the sense that when you buy something, you know, you get a handwritten note and we do that here. Or, um, you know, you feel like you're buying it from this this family vibe. Like you buy something from the bomb hole. A person. A person, right? And, and as opposed to, and I think it's like you look at McDonald's, Right. And it's like this big corporation, like I kind of liken it to Amazon. And then maybe you take your mom and pop's restaurants and your your mom and pop's restaurant experience where you maybe know the owner is going to be much better than your like it, they almost they polarize and they, they make the other one more appealing in a way like. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think you really have to like understand that like the rise of Amazon is at the expense and on the backs of basically slave labor. Right. Like there is not. uh there is no world within that can continue to be scalable 
You know, like I just read the other day that like literally someone died on the line packing boxes and instead of shutting the line down, they put up like a barrier around the deceased and made everyone keep working. I mean, that is just, you know, I, I don't, it's just so wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that I think that we as a culture, the best way for us to counter that is to not consume from corporations that uh, behave in that way. And I know it's really hard to untether. Like I still buy shit from Amazon that I can't get anywhere else, you know, or if I need something the next day. Um, I really, really try to refrain, um, but there's still occasions. And I tried to untether recently, um, and they made it so difficult. It was like I gave up, and, you know, I'm ashamed to publicly admit that. (laughs) Um, But I I would like to get to a place where I can sleep at night knowing that I'm not continuing to be a part of that. Damn, good. You're shedding awareness over here, too. Mm -hmm. I love this. Um, well, before we, you know, we've been kind of derailed from your, your pro career. Um, and actually I got a guest question from Hannah Beeman. So let's just Mm. get into that. I think it's a good one. I love her. Hi, Bumhole. It's Hannah Beeman. I have a question for Cersei and I am wondering as another female in snowboarding, um, we both have been kind of just, you know, one of the boys in our early careers. And I wanted Cersei to maybe talk a little bit about those times and the and the trips and the crazy, you know, memories filming with the guys. Um, I'm just curious to know what that was like for her and also how that may have helped her down the line as an agent and really being able to hold her own with other male agents, TMs and writers. Uh, I think she's a really strong and powerful woman and agent and I know she's really had my back many a times so I just want to know how how those experiences have contributed to her being such a boss <laughs> ah Hannah whoo that's a really good question um and I have to mention that I've worked with Hannah for a really long time I mean it's been over 20 years um, that I've known her and seen her. I mean, just, sh- Hannah, you're incredible. I love you so much. Um, well, I think I've always felt really included in snowboarding. I never felt like there was this weird gender thing um, that I think I've definitely felt uh, in skate. And I don't know if it was just a moment in time where I think it was because we were all these, you know, we were a part of a community. It didn't matter what gender you were. It didn't really matter except for that you identified as a snowboarder, right? And that we were the counterculture and the skiers hated us. And so we had something that unified us against them. And whether it was the resort operators or the skiers spitting at us from the chairlifts or bad editorial or whatever it was that we all of a sudden were like ruining the mountain, that allowed us to like really feel like a part of our own community. It was the first time in my life where I actually felt like outside of my kind of skate click in Eugene that I had a family, right? Like I don't really keep in touch with anybody from high school or any of my school years, but I keep in touch with everybody in the snowboard community. And that is really truly my family. And I'm kind of perpetually 
amazed at what a beautiful tribe we are. Um, I think that I really always wanted to be the girl with the guys. I very early on was kind of an asshole to any interloper woman or girl who came in because I wanted to be the one to hold the space for women. Um, as I got older, obviously I realized how, uh, damaging that was um and I kind of had to reconcile that a little bit and I continue to just in helping the people that I work with understand um the importance of allyship and and um helping other women um and so I think that I felt um kind of empowered to be honest by being able to hang with the guys um, and being included. Um, and also, you know, I had beautiful relationships. Like I had the best boyfriends, you know, Jamie was wonderful. Um, I love him so much. Um, Andy, obviously Hetzel, who is, you know, the father of my daughter, Ava Hetzel. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, just a wonderful person and one of my best friends, <laughs> even now, like our families vacation together and I love his wife and his kids and my kids, uh, my other daughter Hemingway are, are honestly like besties, like they're like cousins. And so I feel like I made good choices in men, um, who are always just incredibly supportive and loving and helpful. And yeah, it was wild Um, And I definitely had run-ins and awkward situations and, you know, some early trauma, but never in snowboarding. It was always like we looked out for each other and I felt very much apart. Um, And also, like, I was included from, like, Tina Basich and uh, Michelle Taggart and Shannon Dunn and... uh, you know, so many of those early influencers and, you know, legends. Um, I remember Doug Palladini invited me on my first editorial trip um, for Snowboarder Mag, and it was with Tina and Shannon and Michelle. And that, you know, really turned into a lifelong of friendships and was kind of my debut in the media. And... I think initially I was like, oh, God, why do I got to get grouped in with all the girls? You know, I really wanted to be seen independently of, like, being lumped in to the girls. Um, But in retrospect, it was so inclusive. And I think snowboarding is really special in that way. I think we have a diversity problem. um, But I think we're working on that. Um, But... Specifically, as it relates to me as a woman in the space, I always felt safe and loved. All right, we're going to take a quick break and talk about one of our partners, Sunbum. 2010, they started making products. Uh, and it's important to know as snowboarders that you can still get cooked like a Kenny Rogers roasted chicken out there, even midwinter. Oh, man, I have been literally blistered on the face. And, you know, I also like to throw some sunscreen on on a really windy day. I feel like it gives you a little extra. Protection for wind and sun. Wind protection. And we got some homies that ride for Sunbump. Jill Perkins, Blake Paul. Mm-hmm. I've definitely dug into their Sunbump stash several times this year, Chris. 
Yeah, they keep it on them in the backcountry. The good thing that I use, I use the uh, Mineral SPF 50 face stick, and it's just, it fits in your pocket. You just get yourself lathered up, and yeah. especially now, you know, warmer weather, spring riding, mm-hmm. you're going to want to keep some sunscreen I'm on pretty you. picky, Chris, and I, you know, I the first time I use it, I buy a, a Well, specific, you're pretty pale, too. Well, that, too, because I use sunscreen yeah. all the time. But when I put it on, it was smooth and silky. It didn't feel like it was stuck on there, which I really like. Being Irish, you probably burn pretty easy. I mean, I'm, I literally have blistered so bad, my whole nose came off at mm. one point. Well, how do you prevent that? Sunbomb. Exactly. So uh, if you want to support Sunbomb, buy it at your local surf shops, snowboard shops. Uh, They support the show, so you should support them. All right, we're going to take a quick break and talk to you about one of our partners, Bubs Naturals. We always talk about their collagen, great for recovery after a long day on the hill. Uh, But big news, they're making coffee. It's called Bubs Brew. It's USDA organic, fair trade. Also, it's the first ever coffee bean to be whole 30 approved now bubs naturals is a way of life they believe wellness is driven from the inside out through the spirit of glenn and a passion for nature's highest quality and sustainably sourced ingredients we help people we help fuel people to reach their maximum human potential while giving 10 percent back to charity their mission is simple feel great do good head on over to bubsnaturals.com use promo code bombhole for 20% off. Again, bubsnaturals.com. Use promo code BOMBHOLE for 20% off your order. And uh, it's a it's a snowboarder-owned brand, and they support us, so you should support them. Uh, and with that being said, let's get back to the show. Okay, and to continue on with Hannah's question, there was kind of a second part of how snowboarding served you in the continuation of your career as an agent. Uh, I mean, I think being in predominantly male spaces made that transition easier for me. I don't think I really understood kind of sexism or misogyny until I was a sports agent, um, where it was so clearly apparent of what a boys club network it is um, and continues to be, frankly. Um, So I think had I known how challenging it was, Uh, I probably would have had a harder time, but because I was kind of naive to it because I didn't have as much exposure to some of that systemic misogyny that um, it allowed me a naivety that it's like one of those things where they say, like, if you'd known how hard it was going to be, you probably wouldn't have done it. So it's just part of the process and... um, you know, that that has been difficult, that reality, and continues to be a challenge for me. So I try to do the best I can, and there's often times where I find myself agitated or frustrated, and a lot of it's unconscious, right? The kind of unconscious bias or boys' club mentality. Um, oftentimes, if I call it like I see it, uh, a man might take offense because it is so unconscious. I love this. I love this topic. Me and Mikey were kind of talking about this before, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, a strong female energy in a male dominated space can be off putting for dudes. Right. And I'm sure you've experienced that, but oh, yeah. I- I'm just curious in your mind, <laughs> I'd love to go deep dive psychology Mm-hmm. On why do you think that is? Is it insecurity? What what drives men to be off put by a strong female energy? 
Um, I think it's probably just they're ill-prepared for how to deal with a highly intelligent emotional being. Like it's, we do have, you know, an EI that is, or tends to be a little more kind of tuned in to that aspect of ourselves, which is also why, you know, you often hear like, oh, you're so emotional or, you know, uh, I think women are, are just inherently kind of more tuned in to the feminine and as a result can um, use their emotional IQ to help navigate situations. Um, and a lot of times dudes don't have that developed part of themselves. And so it is intimidating because it actually is an advantage that they're not even totally aware of. And so it feels scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the, I've seen you interact with a bunch of people and I think some of the misconception would be that it, it, part of the male business that I've been a part of is there's almost like I'm trying to get on top of you. Yeah. But the way I've seen you interact is you really want to meet people eye to eye. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if you want to say anything more about that, but I think a lot of the male approach is like, I'm going to dominate. Alpha vibes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that honestly, there's something to that in that, you know, like it's like, historically strategically the more dominant you are um you know it is intrinsic it's like part of our dna right the male is um you know the the alpha um and so there is a role and i oftentimes challenge that role and they don't even know it they don't even know why that makes them feel uncomfortable it's just because they're like programmed um, and, you know, we're really leveling up as humans in our consciousness. And um, I've gotten better at navigating that instead of just, you know, being angry, which is my automatic default, um, and trying to help them understand how I'm trying to work with them um, or that I am in their service, whether it's with a brand for the benefit of a deal or a client or with with a client or, you know, with a contemporary, I think that, um, we kind of still have a lot of work to do. We're still really far from pay parity. Um, and you know, like if you look at the top earning agents in sport, um, it is almost, it is like Forbes does like the top 50 or a hundred and it's all men. Um, and so I think there is, you know, still a lot of work to be done. Um, and I'm here for it. You know, I think that I want to challenge um, aspects of that dynamic that no longer serve because we don't need uh, an alpha, you know, hunting for us or yeah. <laughs> necessarily providing for us. We're dual income households now, right? Like women are working. Um, but I think we still have some systemic problems, especially in this country where there's like no paid parental leave. There's not a lot of support for working moms. Like I didn't take any time off with either of my kids. And that's not because my employer wouldn't give it to me, but because I'm in a kind of business where client services, like you lose a client, they just go away. There's no one else to step into that unless they fire you. Right. So, you know, and that was a choice that I made, but I had to reconcile that a little bit because it did feel uh, it was hard, 
it's really hard. We have to do more um, than you guys. <laughs> what are, uh, I mean, I'm at this topic, I love this topic. I mean, most of that alpha thing comes from the reptilian brain. It's fight or flight. But what are your tricks? Let's say you're going into a meeting, you know, you may, you, I know you do your homework. You know you may be going into an alpha situation. What are your tricks to sort of bring that level, or do you not even try to level it out and you just sort of work? I try to diffuse it just by being reasonable and being a collaborator, right? Like every relationship it really should be a collaboration. That's how you get the most out of a long-term deal, uh, again, whether with a client or a brand, and the hope is is that you can do good work together. And so I try to, you know, oftentimes broach it with like, hey, look, I'm here to help. Like mm -hmm. I'm in the service not only of the athlete or the artist, but as the brand mm -hmm. in making sure that deliverables are being met and that I'm additive, right? Like I'm not here to get in the way of the relationship. I'm not here just because I'm like – trying to swing my dick around and get more money for my client. It's like, I understand how important long-term uh, productive relationships are. And we're, I'm always starting from that place. Um, you know, I, I'd say I have more of a challenge with many of my male contemporaries mm -hmm. um, because I am um, threatening, mm -hmm. you know, I, um, I, I do kind of have, uh, a little bit of an advantage sometimes in being a woman, and that is something they're unused to or uncomfortable mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. I think it's also it's a good point that you bring up as far as self-awareness and being unconscious, right, from generations not that far ago. Like, women weren't allowed to vote that long ago. Like, there's, there's yeah. like, women, you know what I mean? Like, there's, it, it hasn't been that long. So, so some of these, some of these ideals are passed down unconsciously and so it's it's good to talk about them and 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 uh shed light on them and and make you know spreading awareness is is important for this because like you said a lot of dudes don't even know they're doing it yeah and let's be real right now like what's happening in the political landscape is very intentional to maintain this patriarchal power structure mm -hmm. it is so fucking scary what's happening right now in taking back uh, our rights and autonomy over our own bodies. Um, I'm deeply disturbed and very scared for this country in, um, you know, taking away uh, these rights and also um, not supporting what many of the first world countries are doing in terms of, you know, paternity and maternity leaves and, you know, paid time off and, um, you know, good health care, all of those things that make up a high-functioning first-world society, we are behind the curve pretty dramatically. And so much of that is just about power and money. Um, but it is, a, a, it is a very dark time in this country, and I think that we all should be very concerned and we should be showing up at the ballot box and in every way we can in our communities to ensure you know, equal rights, fair pay, um, and choice. Mm -hmm. Respect and agree 100%. Yeah. Um, we got a guest question from Russell Winfield. Here mm. we go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, sirs. Russell here. What's up, bombhole boys? Hope all's good with you. Sirs, I have a question for you. I want to know if, you know, you being the strong woman you are, if people have, like, in the industry have, like, tried to use that against you or said, you know, 
some derogatory stuff about that because I feel like that, you know, that could happen. Let me know. I hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Love you. Oh, Russ, I love you too. (laughs) Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, I deal with it every day. And to be totally frank, there's a lot of women who are, have a really hard time with me. It is that I would say is harder for me these days than what I come up across with men where I expect that, right? It's the women that I have a problem with who um, think that there's only room for them. Mm-hmm. And that's very relatable to me as I shared earlier. Um, but I think the only way that we change this dynamic is with male allies and with women understanding that they actually have some level of accountability in changing that dynamic. And that includes, if you're a woman, hiring women accountants, hire women lawyers, hire women agents. Like the only way that we create more balance and equity is by, you know, you can't be out there like screaming about how you know, we need more gender equality and then not going out of your way to empower and pay women in your life to do the work um, that you um, pay people to do. Mm-hmm. And, and it all comes back to voting with your dollars is the same thing as hiring with your dollars or whatever. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I say that with Jules. I'm like, people ask me a question. I'm like, I don't know, man. I just work here. Ask Jules. <laughs> she runs the ship. Jules, she runs, let's let's she, give Jules in. Let's yeah. give Jules an air horn. Yeah, yeah. Jules. Yeah. Um, amazing. Yeah, this is this is fun stuff. Talking about all this stuff. You're, you're so well. You're so intelligent in regards to all these deep socio-economic issues, and and I love it. I'm I'm like a hollow-headed snowboarder that talks about tricks a lot and like things like that. And it's it's fun to get on a deeper level with this stuff. Yeah. Well, why we're on it, and especially because Russell just weighed in, and I talked earlier about the need for us to to include more diversity. I think that is probably more important than gender equity at this point as it relates to snowboarding. Mm-hmm. Like we need to be doing so much more. Like I'm surprised, like I've taken on a lot of black and brown clients um, and I am so incredibly challenged by the performative nature of the industry and the lack of real meaningful support for a lot of these athletes. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's a lot of, it's a lot of, of performative bullshit and i think that these brands should really start putting their money where can, their can mouth you is elaborate on performative bullshit <laughs> yeah well they you know that they'll um they will utilize a black or brown person uh in marketing materials or uh consumer facing efforts mm-hmm. while not actually doing anything to develop Uh, or put resources towards creating a more robust, equal uh, opportunity for, uh, for black and brown kids who don't have, you know, historically the same resources and are, and tend to be marginalized uh, in our communities. And it is upon all of us, if we want to be more diverse, to make meaningful investment, even though there might not be immediate ROI, that if you're going to try to sell products and talk about your diversity and inclusion, then you actually need to build programs 
that actually support the development of more participation from black and brown kids. Yeah, I agree. And it's such a, I laugh about it because I feel like the culture, not just snowboarding, has taken so much from black and brown culture, music, style, fashion. It's all part of our sport. And to, for a brand to say there's no ROI there, like, what are you talking about? Yeah. It, the whole thing's been appropriated almost. Right. I, well, one thing so. that I keep running into is, you know, there's like, there'll be some budget allotment or, you know, uh, dollars earmarked for DNI, but then how that's actually spent isn't uh, really meaningful, mm-hmm. right? It's more for a marketing initiative or something to try to get consumers to look at them a certain way. Mm-hmm. But the reality of how those dollars are actually being spent isn't meaningful. And I think that's really what needs to change because there is a lot of dialogue about this. There is a lot of visibility about it. We all know um, the the challenges um, historically. And, you know, what we need to do uh, is actually really take meaningful action. And that's really hard when you're in an environment that is more concerned about a bottom line than, than some of these more societal or culture issues that mm-hmm. you know it it it's oftentimes when i work with black and brown clients um there is a feeling of scarcity it's much like the the, the challenges i run into with other uh women in positions of influence where it's like uh, a proprietary or a protective nature in wanting to make sure that that they get the opportunity and I think we all need to do the work to make sure that there's enough opportunity for everybody mm-hmm. and that for anyone who wants to 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 participate in the space um, there is resources and access um, to those spaces mm-hmm. now there there's you know talking about access and things like that you know lift tickets, this is an interesting topic because I grew up, you know, like my local hill was $12 in Massachusetts to go snowboarding, you know, and, and, uh, ski ward, let's give him an air horn. And, uh, <laughs> nowadays, you know, upwards of 200, a lot of places for a day ticket. Uh, it, we're going to hit you with another hard hitting topic, you know, we're, we're staying on the hard hitting topic. <laughs> got the right you know, person. I know, I know you have, you, you got a take on this. What's your take? I know you got a take. On the price of lift tickets? Yeah. I mean, it's just the same thing as everything else. I mean, listen, we are living in a time of radical climate change. Uh, It costs so much money to operate a ski resort now and snowmaking and, you know, the CapEx or whatever is required to actually run a resort. So um, there's an aspect of me that understands, like, anything you do has to make business sense or what's the point of doing it, right? But I think what's more important... Um, is that we take a step back and really consider, like, what does the future of snowboarding look like? How do we make this sustainable? Um, you know, and I don't have any easy answers, but, you know, I think we're in a world of hurt as it relates specifically to this industry. And if you read anything or look at average snowfall, like, obviously, the West Coast had and, and Utah had a radical season, um, but it's going to get weirder. And, you know, I think this is just one of many problems, but certainly there's uh, aspects of of that that are problematic. And it is uh, I couldn't afford 
$200 a day lift ticket. Like, thank goodness for the icon because it allows my family access that they wouldn't have otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't have any easy solutions for that. I, I have some empathy uh, for the price of lift, lift tickets. But, you know, let's be real. Snowboarding and skiing has always been kind of an elitist activity. Snowboarding brought in a much <laughs> grungier uh, consumer. And, you know, thank God for, you know, some of the accessibility that we have, whether it's hitting rails downtown mm -hmm. or, um, you know, swap meets, which is where I got my start of gear. Um, but I think, you know, if there's a will, there's a way. And I think that, um, you know, I talked about icon, but, you know, that's something that is, you know, relatively, if that's what you and your family want to do and you can find efficiencies, it's, uh, created a, a little more accessibility and opportunity than we've had historically. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting paradox too, though, because it that we want accessibility, but then when the mountains crowded, where we don't want accessibility, <laughs> like yeah, it's right too. there's that that right because then there's lift lines. So these are complex yeah. issues, you know. <laughs> we don't have the answers here, people. We're just having a discussion, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, there's plenty of used gear out there, and I think we're starting to see the rise of rope tow hills and places like that. Maybe that's the way we go with it, but I don't know. Don't have the solution yet. Yeah, and I don't know that we need to have one, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I think that we just need to do things that we can do in our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. Like, what is it that we can do to minimize our impact and create more uh, allyship and accessibility mm -hmm. for our communities? Mm -hmm. I think we need to get back to more community. I think we're all so lucky in that we have one, mm -hmm. right? We're not living on an island. We have... And we're making impact in our respective worlds. And I think that everyone should consider, you know, what it is that they're doing and how they can have a life of purpose in their communities and, and help each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really. And, and, and I do want to say, too, like we've been talking a lot about, you know, there are some doomsday stuff happening. There's, there's you know, what's, I guess what we've been talking about what's wrong in snowboarding, which is important. But there's there's also been some great progress, too. Right. There's some good things happening. You know, I feel like absolutely like I feel like we're stronger than ever. Like, uh, there are, I mean, from our perspective, it being at the bomb hole and the interaction we get from the snowboard community from from my lens, it feels really it feels really strong right now. I agree. I agree. I mean, I think there's a lot of industry that is not as progressive as we are and that um, we're all very lucky to have each other. Good stuff. Um, all right, let's hammer some uh, Patreon questions. Uh, actually, before we do Patreon questions, I just I, I wrote down a list of a couple of your clients. So our listeners, you know, you of who you've worked with over the years as an agent. So we got Travis Rice, uh, we got Zoe, uh, snowboarding Big Air, Jer, P Rod, Costin, Jaeger, Eaton, Sheckler, Torbright, Hannah Beeman. List goes on. Um, just so people kind of understand the magnitude of your clients, I wanted to just sprinkle that in. Yeah, Deshaun Jordan, uh, Russell Winfield, Siddhartha Ola. I mean, so many fun, amazing humans I've been able to be in the service of. It's been truly an honor. All right, seriously, I'm interested how you choose to work with a client. Is that, I mean, you probably find someone, maybe you've a Maybe you found them when they're young, but oftentimes maybe they're older. But what is that relationship you're looking for? Is there certain things that you... Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of changed over the years. 
now it's very natural and organic. Like whether someone comes to me, you know, like I signed this kid, Liam Gill, who's a First Nations kid in Canada, who's a snowboarder who I met from taking. I had offered a sports management mastermind for any BIPOC kids or anyone that couldn't afford the class. And then he attended the class. And then I got to know him and his family. And it was like a perfect opportunity for me to develop uh, his career with him. So that was like super organic, right? It just happened kind of naturally. Um, and quite honestly, like he's on the Canadian team for the Olympics. He went to, uh, he went to Beijing for half pipe. Like he's just checks a lot of the boxes in terms of where I think I can help and bring value and also the kind of talent that I want to work with. Like he's doing a ton of work in his community, uh, in Northern territories and, and just, you know, talking to kids and creating opportunity and visibility for, you know, snowboarding as a career. And I just think that's totally beautiful. And, um, and then, you know, there's, there's kids like Jagger who just turned 22, who I signed when he was eight. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, kind of as a favor to a friend. Um, and, and now is, he's like my family, right? He's a double threat for, uh, Paris, which is so fun. The only mm -hmm. one in the world for park and street. Um, and I love him. And so I think, you know, it, it happens in a variety of ways. I often um, am approached. I often, um, you know, I have like a kind of an internal number, which is like, you know, between eight and 10, um, where, you know, five of them are, let's say, top earners and the rest are kind of development. And, you know, they kind of cycle out. But I will say many of my top earners I've had for, 20 years like yeah. Travis. Yeah. So we have a Patreon question from Simon Bristow. How do you score T Ricky as a client? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know that he likes being called T Ricky. Did you ask him that? We joke with him when he's here. I didn't listen to I, I the never, whole five and a half hours. I've so. never asked him that, but we do <laughs> repeatedly call him T Ricky. Everybody in the crew calls him T Ricky. Okay. Has he told you he doesn't like being called that? No, it's just instinct. <laughs> it's respect. <laughs> it's respect. We, it's yeah, just, we, we are T Ricky. If you fans. earn a nickname, it's because you, we love you. Like 100%. Sparky with McMorris? Mm -hmm. Okay. If, if Travis was like, hey, man, stop calling me T Rick, by all means, I would immediately I would, stop. I would okay. probably like, run around with my tail. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll ask him. <laughs> um, how did I score him? Uh, I, okay. This is a good story. Uh, I had just had Ava. And I was looking for talent and I had eyes on him. And obviously I saw what he did at Chad's Gap and was like, I want to work with this kid. And so I went to the U.S. Open and met with him in person with baby Ava in tow. I think she was like, she was literally like two or three months old. Like she was a baby. I had her in the baby Bjorn under my jacket um, and I met with him and his stepdad, Bob. Um, and at that time, he had a lot of people coming at him. And for whatever reason, he chose me with my baby in tow, which I think says a lot about his character. Um, I think for whatever reason, he thought a woman would be better for him than all the men that were coming at him. And thank God for that, because he's my family. 
We got a guest question from none other than Travis Rice Uh right here. So here we go. (laughs) Bomb hole. A pleasure to be on. I appreciate the opportunity to ask my dear friend, Cersei Wallace, uh, a question. Cersei, um, I I feel like you've had to deal with a lot of adversity in your life, uh, from your youth and upbringing to becoming a professional snowboarder, to then transitioning to help fight for the rights of your friends, uh, riders, athletes, amongst brands and all the other hurdles that come with uh, this type of career path. Um, Transitioning then into forming your own agency and then earning your way and fighting your way to becoming a VP at Wasserman where you currently work today. Um, my, My question is, for those who are trying to kind of break the mold and forge a a path that has otherwise um, been a rarity in their lives and careers, um, do you have any recommendations on eloquent ways of asserting oneself into a career or a path that has otherwise um, not been that attainable? Uh, I feel like your insights uh, could be helpful. Looking forward to the episode, and thank you. Wow. Funny coming from him, just because he's... Done that. And I mean, literally, he's pushing a thousand-pound boulder uphill all the time mm-hmm. to elevate, um, expand, and um, create. So it's been such an incredible honor um, to work with him and, and many of the highest highlights of my career have been in working with him. Um, I mean, tenacity is the most important thing, right? Like don't give up. Don't let people tell you it's not possible. I mean, I remember early on, I had a boyfriend, uh, in high school who was also a snowboarder and told me that I should just give up on a dream of being pro, which was at that time really what I wanted. Um, and I broke up with them right then and there. Cause it was like, no, you know, like I'm 17, like anything is possible. Right. And I've really maintained that mentality in my own life. And I know that now I come from a place of privilege, uh, but I did earn it, all of it, every cent Uh, I am self-made in that regard. And so I think for me and what's worked for me in pushing through the challenges and the barriers and the adversity that Travis is referring to is just not giving up. And I had like a really great, I got a Wasserman. I'm actually an EVP, so I am an executive. Uh, And... I was lucky enough, I work for a great organization. I really, really love being at Wasserman. And I don't know that it's always been great, but right now at this stage in my life, I just have so much gratitude for being uh, with a privately held company that really does put people first. Um, And they were nice enough to give me some executive counseling. So I have always... I was very lucky because I was an angst-filled kid and I had these hippie bohemian parents, but they also got me into some counseling when I was really at my worst. And it could have been easy easy for me to go down a dark path. And 
uh, I remember her name. Her name was Joyce Baker. And from very early on, I had the gift of someone helping me navigate some of these challenges with positive outcome and understanding that, you know, so much of it is the journey and not the destination. And I know that's, you know, uh, a trope or a cliche, but it's really true. And it's like, I think being ambitious is is part of it and that the ambition needs to drive your motivation and that you can't let other people's noise get in the way of what it is that you want to do and that you should pursue whatever it is that you want to do with reckless abandon and don't listen to the naysayers because it's so easy to get caught up. It took me years. It took me until I married my husband to not care, who's a total provocateur, who is constantly ruffling feathers, um, and also the most loving and kind man I know, um, to really understand that other people's perception of me is not important. Mm. And I think that that is something that I, it, you know, it was like, I was like 38 when I learned that. And the minute that I could detach from other people's thoughts or feelings or judgments about me was the minute that I realized that I was fully realized. And I think that that is something that I hope that young people can learn very early on, that if you have dreams and if you have goals, don't let anyone take that from you because that is yours, that you have full autonomy to go pursue whatever that is. And the, it's, the most important thing in your life should be pursuing your passion. And I really think that so many people um, are deterred from that because of, you know, just pragmatic influence. Like, how are you going to make a living at that? I mean, we've all lived through that, right? Mm -hmm. How are you going to make this work for you? How are you going to take care of a family? How are you going to, you know, get health care? All of that shit. When reality is, it's like, just throw yourself into what it is that you love and know that it is going to take 10,000 hours. Like, I can't stand Malcolm Gladwell, but the one thing that I really believe that he was on point about is the idea that it takes 10,000 hours to master anything. And so I think we have a little bit of a problem with our youth in that they think, you know, a lot of them have grown up with a lot of resources or some entitlements and also like looking out at like, well, they have that, so I should have that. And that's kind of, I think, one of the fundamental problems that we have in the fabric of our society of the American dream, which is like, well, you know, so-and-so has a fancy house and a nice car, so I should have that too. That is the American dream. No, that's not the American dream. The American dream is that you put in your 10,000 hours and you get really good at whatever it is that you do and you're providing a purpose and, and a service uh, to the world in some way and you find a way to make that work economically or not. Like if you want to be an activist and that's what gives you joy and you're okay, you know, eating pancakes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but that's what makes you happy, I really believe that that should be enough and that we don't need all of these attachments to material things if we are truly living in our purpose. Incroyable. <laughs> it's true, <Wow>. too. <laughs> wow. You were just in flow state articulating perfectly. I'm imagining so many, like, 10-second polls. We're going to have thousands of them. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't get, mean to get on my soapbox no, at no, it's all. Not, no, it's not soapbox. That, that, okay. That, no, you're using the platform to say, to speak from your heart. And it's and it's also really important. And I think about that too. It's like th there is a false American dream that is sold. That is, that is like happiness is 
is synonymous with material items and you know once i get the job then i get the big house that i've always dreamed of then you have the big mortgage payment then your fucking house broke and you can't do anything cuz you're tied to that and it's like that's not those are the things don't make you happy i let's unpack that for a minute yeah. because i think that is so important i look at a lot of the people in my world who have a lot of money and they are oftentimes the most unhappy people i know and a lot of that is just because what do you do with all of it, right? And unless you're actually living in your purpose, even if you've had a ton of success, I, and that's very relatable to me because I did come from a low-income family. And for me, acknowledgement of my success was material things. I thought that's what was ultimately going to make me happy. And don't get me wrong. I still like nice things. And I know I said that earlier, so sorry to be redundant, but it's true. I want to drive a nice car. I want to live in a nice home. I want good Fred count. I, you know, I want to mm -hmm. stay in the four seasons and go on surf vacations and, you know, take heli trips. Yeah. Um, but I would give all of that up in an instant. As long as I know my family is healthy and happy and that I'm a high functioning, purposeful, you know, mm -hmm. living a purposeful life. And I think that that is the difference. And it's like we are constantly on this hamster wheel and we have been conditioned as a society to um, especially with the rise of social media to um, fill the void of loss of community, loss of family, loss of connection or higher purpose with material things and we project that because we think that's going to give us the endorphin hit or help us find love or you know attention or whatever it is but ultimately I think if you look observationally at celebrity culture and uh, 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 that six men own a majority of the world's wealth like, that is very, very problematic. And I think that we need to kind of get back to, like, what really is important to us in our lives. And I really hope that the youth can get to a place. And I definitely see some movement in the right direction, you know, with with the youth, like, in the streets fighting climate change and, um, you know, just making more conscious decisions, even about, like, where they bank or, you know, how they are contributing to some of these structures, um, but I still think we have a long way to go and I think it's upon us to educate the next generation about what is really important. When you look at, uh, gun violence as the number one, um, uh, reason for death in, in children and suicide and mental health illness, like we have these really profound problems in our cultures and our communities. And the only way that we solve those is by us, you know, being supportive of our youth and helping them understand what a purposeful life feels like and getting off, you know, some of these platforms that mm -hmm. really are built on a capitalist dick algorithm in order to sell products. Mm -hmm. She's <laughs> good. She's good, Mike. I mean, I could listen to this. <laughs> she's she's good. Day. No, but I do agree. I mean, I think one of the things that comes up when you're talking is uh, connection. Like, you're doing something, you're making money, but there's all heart in it. So you're tying your passion and your heart to an action that maybe turns into money. But even the activists you mentioned, if it's just about heart. And I am seeing this happen with the kids, too. I'm starting to see more kids, even at the snowboard mountain, running 80s North Face gear or vintage clothing. And I think a lot of these things are interesting, but... 
maybe you can talk a little bit about the heart. Because I think a lot of times when people think someone's successful, they spend 100% of their time gathering green resource, which is probably the miserable people you see. But you seem to have a nice balance of heart, and you're also the, the byproduct is the green energy. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think we kind of need to reindustrialize, right? And it's like, you know, not to get too political, but there's a lot of been discussion about like the Green New Deal or like uh, how we build things, right? And not just so much consumption. I think that's, and I think that's why kids, you know, even my kids are attracted to more analog technologies mm -hmm. or experiences and why we're also seeing like the rise in interest in in real life experiences and even what's happening in the metaverse where there's like meetups you know where someone might be at home but they're still having community engagement mm -hmm. or interaction in an environment that they participate whether that's gaming or art or, mm -hmm. or whatever um and i think that uh you know ultimately um, there are really bright glimmers of what a dystopian or a utopian future could look like. I think we're kind of caught in a little bit of a dystopian time, mm -hmm. <laughs> but that there is so much beauty in the world. And there is, you know, listen, all of us in our lifetime are going to live and die on Earth. I can't say the same for the space cowboys. Uh, I don't want to live in Mars. I don't want to colonize another country. Like, we have the most beautiful resources. I mean, how lucky are we to get to live in this time and have all of our needs met? And uh, uh, whatever it is, you know, you can pick any kind of food you want to eat on any night of the week, yeah. and you have access to that. That's that's like a, a new thing if you look generationally. So I think that, you know, yes, there's troubling times, but also I really believe in the future and... Um, I, I tend to keep a really positive mindset about what's possible. And I think that is how I reconcile uh, my own um, hypocrisies is that uh, it's a lot easier for me to help someone achieve what they want because I'm not projecting that on them. I'm just in the service of, of helping facilitate whatever it is that they want. I don't make decisions for them. I just gather information and do outreach and make sure that I'm generating opportunity and, and helping take ideas um, and bringing those things to life. And I think that there is an artistic or a creative element to that that I am particularly well-suited for mm -hmm. um, that allows me to feel like I'm contributing in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's something really important to talk about too. What you're, what I'm hearing you describe with all these things too, because it, it's easy to get lost in achievement of, uh, like achievement of a goal, right? I want to, I want to become a pro snowboarder at all costs. And in, in my experience, the, the most successful year I ever had, financially, accolades wise, I got there and I realized I was up and I had achieved a lot of things I wanted to. It was the most miserable year I've ever had in my life. <laughs> And it was almost like looking down, like, hey, guys, it's not up here. Like, what you're looking for is not up here. And as I listen to you talk, and what I've learned as well, is that uh, human connection is, is so undervalued in, in our society and our life. And, and a real form of wealth is interpersonal relationships with other people. Like, that's really, like, like fills your soul. Mm -hmm. it, it's, you know, really, mm -hmm. like, and when I hear you talk about providing a service for your clients... It's like you, you are wealthy in 
financially, but you're also wealthy in personal relationships, which as a problem with Instagram, right, we have and things like that. There's issues societally where we feel like we have human connection, but we're actually in a room staring at our phone (laughs) doing this. And that's not whereas if you go out in the wild and you go to a band or you go to the skate park and you sit with your friends, you're like, oh, I feel great. Well, like the the, the, sometimes the, the little phone interpersonal relationships are, are a little bit fake mm-hmm. or your bo- they kind of trick you but the real ones you know like the that you've nourished um bring great happiness is that correct well i mean that's why we love snowboarding right yeah because you can't be on your phone when you're picking a line or you know having to look four feet ahead of you and you're in flow state and that's why it gives us so much joy. And I think the more that we can tap into those kinds of things without this little device, I mean, pretty soon they're going to be embedded, right? <laughs> I mean, no joke. Yeah. And now with chat, uh, uh, I, the chat IP or whatever it's called, uh, I mean, it's going to get really fucking weird, you guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think this this kind of stuff, what you're doing here, is exactly the kind of things that we need to continue to do to have this real life, you know, connective tissue with our community. And, and, you know, I have a question for you, which is when you got to that state of your career and you had achieved all the milestones that you had wanted to, what was it that made you feel so empty? Well, I didn't actually articulate this well, but what I was thinking and I didn't say is I, I wasn't nourishing personal relationships. Mm. Oh, okay. So I wasn't. You I were was, doing it at all costs. I was like, you know, I, I would always say like, you know, my 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 significant other at the time, that was a train wreck. Uh, you know, bills piled up, like everything. I had no balance in my life. It was just like, right. it was like an alcoholic, but my, my alcoholism was getting clips and like at all costs, right? Which fucking, I still, I still love it. I still look back and, and I wouldn't trade anything for the world. But you, you kind of get to a milestone that you think would make you happy but you realize you your shit's way out of balance, and you're like, well, the career's going good, but I haven't been nourishing relationships. Right. So let's let's shift a little bit here. And I think that that's that's I mean, all the things you're saying as you're talking, I'm like, damn, she's she's like a Yoda over here, just dropping dropping knowledge. Well, I think even look at like you know, I see you have a picture of Tom Brady there. Um, there's plenty of examples of the most successful athletes in our culture who really have a hard time functioning uh, in their home lives or in their interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think there are, you know, there's like an archetype, right? And I could name some of them, but I'll refrain (laughs) from uh, people that do pursue something at all costs. And that's because it's the only way that they can ultimately achieve greatness. And they'll leave a trail of tears to achieve what it is that they need. And that requires a level of narcissism. And I think if you look at the top athletes in their respective fields, most of the time they're pretty fucked up and they don't have great relationships. And, you know, they are, you know, post-career pretty unhappy and have to go a little bit through something to be able to come out the other side of it as, as high functioning Mm. and happy. Yeah. If you want to call it that. I would almost recommend that to someone that wants to do that, where like, you know, no, if you're a hundred percent committed to a sport, don't even try to have a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Totally. Like, literally just commit 100%. If you want to be the best, you, there will be a trail of tears. I mean, there's, there's zero people that have ever been the best in the world. And, and I think that didn't have that Yeah. behind. 
Well, I got a theory too, like to going back to football. Like you look at Aaron Rodgers, for example. You know, he was dominant quarterback, extremely dominant. Goes and does ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, he kind of starts sucking ass. And, and <laughs> what I realized, my my theory behind this is that he went and he did he did a bunch of stuff where he kind of unpacked some of that mm-hmm. that emotional baggage, yeah. and he realized like. Well, if I don't lose, I'm actually still okay. It's like you don't want that. If like yeah. if, if I'm like a team yeah. manager, if I'm For a sure. coach, I don't want anybody doing personal development. Like I want everybody like if I lose, that means death. And that's how you're gonna get a juggernaut of an athlete. That's mm-hmm. right. You know, and then I yeah. think that's very relatable even to me on a m- micro level. Like I was really worried. When I was pregnant with Ava, I was like, oh, man, like, am I giving up my career? Am I, you know, my mom gave me some really good advice, which is like, this baby's coming into your life. Don't change anything. Mm. But I think that I really went through a period of like my ambition, because it was defined by material possessions or earning things or having good fashion or, you know, driving a 911, uh, I was afraid that the minute that I let go of the want of those material things, I wasn't going to be as successful, that I was going to be letting go of my ambition. And that was like a process Mm. to really get back to. And I think COVID for me was transformative in that um, we all went home, right? We all kind of had to go within ourselves and deal with our lives and our families in a way that um, allowed at least me to come out of it like with a reset of what was really important to me in my life. And I think that just allowed me a level up that, you know, like I really, I like nice things, but as long as I have a roof under my head and I can eat decent food and my family's good, I'm okay. And that realization also comes with a little bit of fear. Like, does that mean that I'm not going to realize my potential in my lifetime. I'm middle age, right? I'm 51. Am I going to be able to achieve what I want in business and in life uh, if I let go of that core objective of, you know, what we define as success? Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this. While you're talking about that, what's what's your why? Do you have a why you do it? I mean, I do it for my family. I do it so that I can live the most full life possible while I'm alive on this earth. Like I have an immense amount of gratitude every day that I get to have this human experience, that I get to have these kinds of relationships, that I get to love and live fully, that my body works, that I'm at a state in my life where uh, I get to be a, a fully conscious human being like to be born into this body in this lifetime despite all of the hardships that we all experience and generational trauma and all this stuff you know no no one's stuff is any worse or easier than anybody else's right it's all relative but that I even get to unpack some of that in this lifetime and that I have the resources um to do that it just feels like such an incredible gift it's inspiring definitely I guess that brings up for me just on the simple. You just brought it up how grateful you are. Do you have like a ritual or a a practice? Like Chris and I were talking, his thing is going walking in the park in the morning. I meditate and take a walk as well. Do you have one that you start or end your day with? Or I mean, I always do something, whether it's you know journaling or meditation or 
more often than that, uh, I'll, I'll take a walk in nature or I'll surf or I'll get on the hill. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I would say surfing and snowboarding are the things that give me the most joy just being in nature. Um, but you know, my daily practice varies for sure. Like I really like Pilates and if I only have an hour, that's what I'll do. Mm -hmm. But, um, I do give myself time every day to at least like sit with myself a little bit and, I have an incredible husband who allows me space to do that. Let's get an air horn. (laughs) All right, we're going to take a quick break and talk to you guys about Liquid Death. We've been annihilating these cans on the show. Uh, They look like beers, but they're just water. But big news, they actually have teas now. Jules, did you hear that? What's What's your favorite flavor? You know, I've tried all three of them, and I like them all a lot, but I think Rest in Peach is my favorite. It's just really refreshing, and it tastes Pretty healthy. Mm, healthy taste. Love that. I'm an armless Palmer guy myself. I like the Arnie P. I like golfing. It's a great tea. So uh, definitely check out Liquid Death's new teas coming out right now. Uh, basically, they're available with free shipping on Amazon and retailers near you. As an added bonus, the Bombhole listeners get 20% off their first Liquid Death apparel purchase available exclusively at liquiddeath.com slash bombhole. Exclusions may apply. That's liquiddeath.com slash bombhole and murder your thirst with these new teas. All right, we're going to dive into a couple Patreon questions. Uh, I want to start it off by saying thank you to our Patreon members. We're so thankful for you guys because they really help us do the show and uh, support the show. And, and we really appreciate your guys' contribution. And some people submit questions. So we're going to run through a couple Patreon questions. This one is from Den M. Seriously, as an agent, what was the most difficult contract negotiation you've been a part of? Even if you can't give names slash details, maybe you could describe the scenario. This is very fresh in my mind. I just dealt with a well-known footwear brand uh, and a woman skate client um, who is not publicly on my roster so I can speak relatively freely here I was so shocked by this experience um and dealing with this brand I'm still kind of shook from it to be honest because I was dealing with a another woman CMO who did not or VP of marketing I don't know her exact title. Um, and I have history with this brand, which made it even more kind of disturbing. Um, and it just really made me realize that this organization had completely lost its soul, um, had been acquired by a large conglomerate. And just the way this individual was treated and the lack of, you know, like I had prepared all of this like data informed, like how she over indexed with their consumer and all of these uh, incredible things that she had done and was doing for them. And there, they came to the meeting and hadn't even read what I had spent like weeks pulling data for and, you know, really writing heartfelt um communications and um I was just shocked I was just shocked at the tone deafness of 
the process and the lack of respect. And, you know, not that I expect anyone to know who I am, but this person should have. This person should have known not only who I was, but more importantly, who the client was um, and why she was so important to the organization, especially in this time. So that really... I mean, I like cried for days. I was so upset because I kind of had to fall on the sword for her um, with a brand that had been endeared to me for many years. And it hurt. It like really hurt that one, there wasn't enough respect to at least read what I had had created on her behalf Two, how she was treated. And three, how I was treated, where it was just so dismissive. Um, and then there was kind of a junior uh, TM who really participated in that. And it just really hurt. And so I would say that, you know, is is just fresh. There's been a lot of them. <laughs> There's been a lot of one, of deals that have kept me up at night or how like I've been treated or, you know, kind of, you know, I, I think there's like a general attitude about agents that were just like, you know, interlopers or bottom feeders or whatever. And, and in some instances, I think that's true, but I don't think I am. <laughs> and so when I am treated as such, it's really hard for me, mm -hmm. especially with a beloved brand. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of the, misconception that people have had about agents is it's just that they just go get a deal yeah they're just picking up the phone but or... it's that's the just literally the top of the pyramid there's so much below that you guys build yeah and we careers really careers and mentorship and just and counseling and co-parenting yeah, yeah. and also like legal mm -hmm. like i am always i treat every client whether i'm working for them pro bono which i do i always have a couple clients that i don't commission because they're not you know, it's like fueling a career. You got to get to a certain point before. And I only want to take money for deals where I bring value. So I think, you know, I understand why there's sometimes that kind of perception. But also, I think it's unfair when you're not willing to, like, do the research when you're dealing with an individual who you want to represent your brand, you know, to to do your homework at least mm -hmm. when coming to the table on a negotiation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's disheartening to hear. Uh, going back to how you got into being an agent. I think this is a good time for you maybe to talk about the, the story about how you wrote for ride mm. and, uh, and that transition. Yeah. Well, um, I was riding for lib at the time, kind of just on flow um, I was at a trade show. I had met Tim and Steph. I met Tim in Japan, um, and had like a lot of fun and he's just great. Tim Pogue, uh, <laughs> and Steph Pogue, who was amazing. She needs one. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, sidebar. I got to hijack this. I yeah. miss air horns all the time. Like there's people's names that come up and I don't want to disrupt the conversation. So I get all these comments and people are like, dude, this such and such, did Jamie Linden get air horns? It's like, 
just like <laughs> sometimes we throw an air horn, sometimes we don't. Just just back, just relax. I forget. I'm human. Okay. And I feel going. like Jamie Lynn's had enough air yeah, horns. Yeah, he does. It's like it's like, like he doesn't he need is it. an air horn. He is an air horn. <laughs> if you think he needs an air horn, he just it's obvious. But yeah. So I'm sorry if I forgot to give you an air horn. But anyway, uh, I had to just kind of. Can do I a get PSA. an air horn, please? I need one. Yeah. Let's give you one. Let's give you the super. Air horn. Yes. That's nice. Let's give Julian an air horn. Yeah, Julian. Yeah, Julian. Nice job. Producer back there. We're just throwing air horns out, making everybody feel good. <laughs> I'm going to give myself an air horn. Mm-hmm. As you should. That does feel good. Wow. <laughs> All right. Nice. I get it now. I get what the draw is about. Okay. All right. I'll try to be better. I'll try to be better. Sorry. All right. Where were we? Uh, you were talking about riding oh, for ride. Lib. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I mean, they were great. They were like family, but there weren't a ton of resources. And I also really felt strongly that like I wanted my, I really suffered in the shadow of Jamie's success. And for me, and, you know, through no fault of his own, uh, I mean, he's spectacular. Um, I felt like I needed to have a couple degrees of separation because I really wanted to be seen not as Jamie Lynn's girlfriend. And that was kind of a hard uh, hard thing to bifurcate, right? Because that's what I was seen as. And no one had really seen me ride until Roadkill, which was my video debut. Um, and even after Roadkill, I had so many people come up to me and be like, oh, I thought you were a dude. So I felt like I needed my own identity. And funny enough, we were all at, I guess it was SIA. It's Vegas. ASR? Trade show. No, ASR was San Diego. I think it was SIA Vegas. I'm pretty sure it was a Vegas show. One of Ride's earliest showing, maybe their first, like a formal, like decent decent size booth. Um. And this is kind of an embarrassing story, but I'm going to tell it anyway because we're not infallible and I definitely have some history. But um, there was this kind of proho chick who was kind of always lingering around and really annoyed me and was kind of like flirty with Jamie. And so I literally took her down in the hallway of the trade show. (laughs) I've heard this story from Russ, but go on. I love it. Um, and you know, in retrospect was awful. Like it was not cool. And I was an awful person for being physically violent with someone who definitely didn't deserve it. Uh, but yeah, I took her down and Tim and Steph were there and saw the whole thing. And for whatever reason, that for them was it. It was like, oh, you can hang with us. Right. And, you know, we'll fuck with you. And that was it. From that point on, you know, they brought me in and made me an offer. And I was, you know, early days. And it was so fun. Like, they're so great. It was like a surrogate family in a lot of ways. Like, I lived with them in Issaquah and really got to get my hands dirty and product development. And, you know, I got my whole, a whole line of boards and multiple series and um, really got to, like, learn a lot and have a seat at the table as part of a team, you know, as an equal that felt like it did feel inclusive and it was such a good crew. And even now, like I'm still friends with everyone on that team. Um, and there's even Mikey. Yeah. I was after he was later. I was a huge fan of Sears. 
But it, for me, as a fan, because I, it wasn't sponsored, I was seeing Ride as the team I wanted to be on. And you, you just seem like such a fit. Like if you look at Dale and Rowan and Russ and all the guys, kind of like edgy punk, new vibe, definitely a fashion change to the the Roadkill crew, which was Mountain Gear. Yeah, you guys were running. Can you talk a little bit about that? Was that something you adopted, or did you just come from this? I just came from the Northwest. Yeah, that style. Yeah, and you know we were really in a baggy pant phase, mm-hmm. punk <laughs> rock a little bit. Oh yeah, I mean I grew up like. That was one good thing about the Eugene and my, you know, my early early adolescence, like fourteen to, or like twelve to fourteen. Like there was a really robust uh, punk scene, mm-hmm. and I got to see like all, like so many good early shows. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to Seattle when I was fifteen, and then was totally there for all. You know, like I saw Nirvana and the Bellingham. Mm-hmm high school audit gymnasium you know i saw pearl jam was friends with eddie vetter like got to really be a part of what was happening in that time so yeah i really came from that kind of skate punk Mm -hmm. culture early on and then you know that kind of moved into more of a grungy snowboard era (laughs) yeah and you also had the the first woman's uh pro model boot with vans i did yeah yeah you want to talk about that yeah, I mean, uh, that was Cheryl Lynn, who was a rep for them, really gave like Gary and Walter Schoenfeld, who was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Cheryl Lynn's amazing, uh, still a very close, dear friend of mine. Uh, but she really gave the Schoenfelds visibility. Um, at that time, they were still privately held. Walter was a, just a great guy, um, cool family, and it was the same time that Palmer and Jamie had pro models. So they just built me into that. And then I was the first boot made on a women's last. Wow. So it was, you know, smaller footbed, smaller sizing, which is crazy to think about now. Like we've had some advancements. Um, and I mean, it's sold like hotcakes. Mm-hmm. It's really. Let's talk some cheddar. Let's biscuit. talk bisque. Yeah. yeah. Well, we got Let's a good royalty check. Let's talk royalty check. Yeah. I bought my property that I live on from a royalty check. That's nice. Do you want to elaborate more? Can so you share that? an actual zero, number zero, zero? Um, of the royalty check or the price of the property? I mean, we're just trying to provide, you know, these <laughs> listeners, let me tell you something. They it love, was very they low little, they, six figures. That's nice. That's yeah. a fat ass royalty check. That's yeah. awesome. For boots. It was, was a, you know, it was over a couple quarters or whatever. Yeah. So it wasn't just like yeah. one fat check. That's but nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Still really nice. It was life changing. Yeah. What, percent, what percent royalty was it? Do you remember? Chris I could pull it. I still Chris have is the trying contract. to negotiate his current. I think I think it was probably like you know eight or nine percent. So they bump. They keep bumping it down and down and down. But it was favored nations, meaning that I got the same as the guys, mm-hmm. which cool. was cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's amazing. That's so it was life changing. Elaborate. I kind of interrupted you. Oh well, I had you know moved around a lot as a kid. I went to like eleven different schools in twelve years. I ended up graduating from an alternative high school because I didn't really fit into the Seattle scene, uh, which was actually really good for me. Um, but I <laughs> I had never, like my parents never owned a home. Yeah. So for me to like actually really dig roots, 
you know, physically and metaphorically was really good for me. Mm-hmm. And I still live in that home. Both of my children were born in my bedroom wow. there. And, um, you know, that is kind of my legacy, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's amazing. We got a guest question that pertains to this from Benny Pellegrino. Hmm. Uh, he said, I, was, I have always looked up to the way you and Andy raised Ava. Please tell us what is the secret to being such a good parent and being a good parent post-divorce as well. <sighs> Leave it to Benny to bring <laughs> the tears. Hey, Benny needs an air horn, too. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody gets an air horn today. Um, You know, I don't know. Like, Andy and I really loved each other, and we made a baby, and we both, you know, were young and had some challenges. And, you know, I'll take full responsibility for, you know, what was ultimately the end of our marriage. Um, or I won't take full responsibility, but I'll take a large portion of it in that I just wasn't well equipped for... Um, you know, I, I was relentless in my pursuit of my career. And I think that our relationship suffered, you know, under that. And a lot of that was because I felt like it was survival, right? Like I had to figure out post-career, snowboarding career, how to make a living, especially having a kid. And so I just went like full bore into my career and there was no, you know, I just had blinders on and, you know, our relationship kind of took a back seat and you know I think we did a lot of work it wasn't like it happened overnight but we really were committed to Ava even in a a divorce Mm -hmm. and it took a long time it didn't happen you know easily or overnight but we were both really committed to co-parenting her and he really held me accountable in a way that helped me level up even post-divorce in terms of like putting Ava first and not work and, and, you know, I was, and still can be kind of compulsive about my work. Like it's so much a part of my life and my identity. And he was a great reflection of, of prioritizing her. And so through that commitment to her, I just think we earned a lot of mutual respect for each other and were able to kind of come back to a place of just loving kindness and I really love his wife who's one of my best friends and we've raised our children together and it feels very you know community we live close to each other and well we happen to have a guest question from Andy Hetzel himself (laughs) oh my goodness here we go (laughs) sirs it's your (laughs) ex-husband So my question is, growing up as a dirty butt skate rat, how did you end up with your love for high-end fashion? Much love, hope you and the fam are well. Wow. (laughs) He he would be the one to ask that question, just kills me. Uh, Really, I have Paige Clay to thank for my love of fashion. Um, Paige Clay is one of my best friends in the whole world. And um, she is a Southern belle from Charleston, uh, 
North Carolina mm-hmm. or is it South Carolina? I think it's South Carolina. It could be South, yeah. Yeah, I think it's South Carolina. Shows you how much I know uh, about the Carolinas. <laughs> Been there once. Um, and she just came from an environment and an appreciation for fashion and really taught me a lot about not only fashion, but like literature and, you know, kind of a more sophisticated, um, she just expanded my world in so many ways. Like she taught me about good thread count or, you know, about, uh, the history of a lot of these brands that, um, then, you know, once I kind of discovered how fashion can be such an expression, um, and also, like, I really appreciate how, like, well-made things can last forever, you know? Like, so many of the investments I've made in fashion will go to my children, you know? Like, th- they're precious things that aren't wasteful if you make an investment and they hold value and you, you know, they pay good wages to their manufacturers and things are actually made in in good conditions and all of those things so it was very much aligned with my bohemian parents kind of influence and my desire for material things and this ability to express myself through fashion which I still really love I love fashion I wish that um I could be seen by some of those brands as as worthy of being dressed by them (laughs) (laughs) But I'm a dirty butt skateboarder, so <laughs> in my heart, in my heart. Good stuff. Well, we've been plugging plugging away here, and I think it might be time for a special part of the show we call Name That Video Part. Uh-oh. Name That Video Part is brought to you by Woodward. Now, here in Utah, we have Woodward Park City. It's only 15 minutes from Salt Lake City, and they're open pretty much all year round. Yeah, I, I love it. It's a one-of-a-kind action sports community, and you know one of the favorite things up there is chucking it into the foam pit. Zero risk. Mm-hmm. Little risk, but you know, no pain. You, you can know, really I, learn tricks. I've backflipped a scooter into the foam pit, but I've never actually gone and tried snowboard tricks, but I I need to get up there because, like, dude, I'm losing. I'm These things are dropping like flies. I got to... I gotta, Get them back. Every time I'm up there, I'm seeing kids like they're on the floor, they're out there snowboarding, they're in the foam pits, they're dancing around. I mean, what a great place to have your kids. Or even pretty much every any given day, you're going to see top pros riding the park. Mm-hmm. Think about what we had growing up. These kids got Woodward Park City. They're going to be freakazoids on the snowboards coming up. Absolutely. Um, they got also have Salt Lake City's own, one of the only indoor skate parks so you can skate year-round mm-hmm. and some of the best coaches around as well so if you're just starting out or even if you're at advanced level you could go up and get a really good lesson that's that's their big thing is they they want to develop you from all the way from beginner to you know they have like little boxes all the way up to huge jumps and, and a super pipe as well so it's for all ability levels which is great and uh the one thing that's really great is the affordability compared to a lot of these uh you know day tickets that you see being up over 200 bucks it's it's a very affordable place to get a monthly membership absolutely get there after school for a couple hours i love to especially about to hit spring i'm up there you know work a full day i can drive up at four and get a couple hours in and it's plenty perfect well if you're in the utah area check out woodward park city and we're going to get into name that video part seriously how are you feeling 
Um, insecure. <laughs> <laughs> One to ten. What do you? Where do you think you're at? Oh, I don't know. Honestly, I have bad memory, and I don't watch anything. So. Okay, that's uh, doesn't sound promising, Mike. No, I'm not sounding good here. I tried to do a meatball, but Hopefully this might not have been enough of a meatball. I don't know if I. We'll see what happens. Um, I'll, here we go. I mean, Art of Flight. Yes. Booyah. You got it. You got Killed it. it. <laughs> you got it. Travis, Travis would have been pretty upset. You got it. <laughs> I'm so glad I That's got that awesome. one. You know, all this high-end fashion talk, you got some bomb hole merch, which nice. is basically high-end fashion. Absolutely. I do? Yeah, this is your prize. You just yeah. won that. Yeah, so you just won a bomb hole prize. Oh, my bag. God. Thank God you made that easy for me. Yep. We got, uh, I produced it, so I better know it. Yeah. <laughs> I went with um, I went with some old videos, and I was like, this seems like a little bit of a dice roll. Let's go T-Rick, mm. Art of oh, Flight. Oh, thank God. I get it. Thank God. That's you think that it was a... An easy one. I'm so relieved. Okay, part two of Name That Video Part. This one isn't for you. This is for our listeners. They get to guess. So if you know the song, comment on Instagram on the photo of CRC when the episode comes out. And that's where we pick our winner. Here we go. Great video. I know Mike knows that one. Let Sears take a swing. It was it was one of the most impactful and definitely a top member of your crew back in the day of Breckenridge times. Okay, is it a Pennywise song? Not Pennywise. No effects. No, I don't think it's I don't think it's no effects. Well, who was riding? Yeah, I know, I know. I'm just trying to yeah align with the early Breck crew. Fuck, I have no idea. Everybody's favorite. Everyone's favorite from like. Okay. Maybe had. Jamie. Close. Very close. Uh, Merriman. Oh. Hmm. Hold on. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Thank you guys for playing. Name that video part. You did great. Congrats on your win. All of the gear in there is available at bombhole.com, by the way, if you want to support the show to our listeners. Um, maybe we should hit another Patreon. Let's see what we got. This one's from Frank Huang, Patreon member. Thank you to our Patreon members again. Yeah, thanks for Thank supporting you. the Bombhole. You may have kind of been asked this already, but we're going to hit it again. Um, what's the best advice you learned from snowboarding and being a female pro in the 90s that translates to your life as a professional wife and mother and is it true that half the pro surfers have a bounty out on your husband Chaz (laughs) maybe yeah very good question two-parter okay uh first part what did I learn as a professional snowboarder that has transcended into my career now or no wife and mother Okay. Hmm. Uh, personal safety? I don't know. I think I was probably, uh, I learned a lot about um, 
what my risk tolerance was. And I think that applies as a mother, what I'm comfortable with. Um, you know, there's always that fine line of being like overprotective mom and also letting them do what they love. So I think that's, um, I think applied in like my personal learning and the more educated I could be, you know, about high risk environments and how to be responsible in them and minimize risk mm -hmm. and have, uh, taught my children that so that I have confidence when they're out in the world that they're making good choices while still having fun. Awesome. Amazing. And part two about your uh, husband has a bounty on him for surfing. Oh, I don't think, I mean, here's the thing about my husband is he likes to ruffle people's feathers, but he's actually a really wonderful person. And I think anyone that actually really knows him knows that. Um, it, it, there's a kind of a funny thing that people don't understand about my husband, which is he'll talk a lot of shit on someone, but the minute that they actually reach out to him or will respond to a request to have a conversation, that dissipates relatively quickly, especially if they're willing to either unpack whatever it is that he might take issue with or is writing about. Um, and some of his closest friends have evolved in that way, which mm -hmm. is he maybe wrote something about them kind of in jest. I mean, he's always just having fun. What he does, you know, isn't that harmful unless they deserve it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So. Good stuff. And he doesn't care what people think. So he writes from his heart. And I think there's very little of that left in the world. I mean, our, mm. our media and our journalism has been so compromised. And I think most of uh, journalism is avatorial and they don't rely on brands investment so they can say what they want without you know with total autonomy mm -hmm. to write how and what they want and I think that's you know it it's like they don't have to bow to anybody and I think that's pretty incredible mm, that's really powerful yes free media yeah. Um, cool. I wanted to go back and talk about your transition with Ride when you had a lawsuit of some sort. Oh, okay. Yeah, I always talk about this, so I'll keep it quick. Um, I, I mean, obviously, Ride went through a lot of changes, and Tim and Steph essentially got pushed out. They put in this new CEO and went public. Uh. And then they had a pretty drastic fall in share price. It was like during that time where people would go public, you know, just to make a lot of money. And then, you know, it wasn't about the brand anymore. It was about how, you know, at that point, I think they were kind of share price was down and they were in negotiations with K2 and in an effort to minimize their liabilities, they did everything they could to cut costs. And I had been injured while actually working for them on a shoot, and they terminated my contract. And so I found a lawyer in Seattle who took me on contingency. Her name was Susan Fox. She changed the entire trajectory of my life, and I love that it was a woman. Uh, <laughs> and she essentially made me write my own case. So I had to like write out all my timeline and, you know, really do like the, the heavy lift to give her kind of all of the information 
to essentially file suit, which then got, you know, pushed to arbitration. And then I essentially won that case in arbitration and they had to provide me with settlement. So through that was like, it was a really empowering experience because, Mm -hmm. you know, here I am, you know, the little guy again fighting, you know, the big corporate monster. Um, And uh, it was worth, you know, every effort because that then sent me on a trajectory of how can I help others um, who find themselves in this dynamic where they don't know how to manage Mm -hmm. um, a big corporate entity's, you know, business decisions. You know, they're non-emotional, right? Mm -hmm. It's not about me. It wasn't about me. They didn't do it um, thinking they were screwing me. They did it because they thought they had you know, this was what they needed to do to minimize their costs and and make a nicer package. Mm-hmm. So, and that changed your trajectory where you kind of were pro snowboarder, and then that's what led you to diving into being an agent. Yeah, that was kind of the epiphany that I came out of. That you know, I had I had a, a couple years left on my career. That was you know my first ACL tear, and that was a really hard lesson. And got me to start thinking about, okay, like, how can I continue to stay? Like, for me, it was really how can I continue to stay involved in this community and culture and business in a meaningful way so that I could still go snowboarding? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting thinking about, all right, so you, being a pro snowboarder versus being an agent. Think about our listeners. A lot of them are striving to probably be a pro snowboarder. Um, but I'm curious to you. Which one's more fulfilling, has been more fulfilling? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. They're so different, right? I think I was, I've been really able, as a businesswoman, I've been really able to stretch myself in, you know, like understand learning and understanding how business works and, you know, being a master negotiator and also human relationships snowboarding was like I got to travel the world I got you know I was so young I got to develop you know I had you know such great relationships in partnerships as well as um friendships that have lasted a lifetime and I got to be in nature and I mean I literally got to go everywhere you know I've been to South America I've been to New Zealand a bunch I've been all over the world getting to ride my snowboard and that was like so transformative in being, you know, I had never left the West Coast. I had never been on an airplane. Mm-hmm. And then I got to go do all this fun stuff. So great I answer. That, yeah. yeah. Hard yeah. to pick. Hard to pick. Good Hard stuff. to pick. Just, no, no reason to pick, really. And yeah. it's just so different. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it was like I w- I got to be young and have fun and express myself and see the world and make lifetime relationships and now you know at a certain time you a point you got to grow up and um that's hard Mm. (laughs) it was a hard transition for sure I, i think it's really cool for our culture though to to expand the avenues as far as careers in snowboarding that's important you know we if we love it how do we how do we keep careers in snowboarding yeah and i think you're a great example of a way of a of a, of a path that you've you've forged for yourself yeah thank you um okay i got i got some other i'm gonna change gears here okay. 
Let's pivot, if you will. Let's pivot. Um, Hard hitting topics here. So you are an agent, which means uh, as the Olympics come around, there's like if one of your clients wins, it's it's big money. It's once every four years deals. Uh, there's this kind of crazy Olympic push, especially if somebody gets a medal, um, which I think is great especially for your clients and yourself. But I'm curious as what are your thoughts, you know, being a lifelong snowboarder on the state of snowboarding in the Olympics and where we've gone with coaches and government funded teams and everybody at the top of the half pipe with an iPad and, and like airbags and where, what are your thoughts on all that stuff? I think it's great. I think whatever the kids want to do, you know, I think it's awesome that we get to be on the world stage. And as much as I cannot stand, as I've shared earlier, <laughs> bureaucratic, capitalist-driven power structures, which I think, you know, the Olympics is a very good example of, that, again, it's about a kid's dream, right? And no one should take that away from them. If that's something a kid wants to achieve in their life and there's an opportunity to do that, I'm here for it. I will totally fuck with that mm -hmm. because it's not my dream. I'm just there to help them get there. And I've been able to do that so many times. Like it's really tangible. It's right there. I know what it takes. And I have been able to assist, I think, seven medals in my career and we're going into a next olympic cycle so to be able to continue to contribute in a meaningful way to someone realizing their dream is truly an honor and i have all kinds of challenges and have historically and all kinds of internal frustrations with the ngos or how people run their business or how money is spent or wasted or uh, abuse or abuse of power or all of these things that we deal with anytime you have a power structure like this in place that is historically corrupt, you inevitably uh, have challenges. But I think ultimately this is, it is global, which I think is really important. There is something, you know, really incredible about uh, a kid realizing that and having uh, an opportunity to have that kind of mm -hmm. experience on the global stage um, purely through their athleticism is mm -hmm. really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I love seeing parts of it too. I think when it comes down to the action day, I love the Olympics, all the bureaucratic stuff, whatever. But I, when you see sage or someone else medal and then go on to represent our sport in a fun cool way for weeks or months after it's a nice gift i think yeah and i've got to go on olympic runs you know with torah and yeah. scotty lego yeah. and yuri podlachikov yeah. and jagger eaton and zoe mm -hmm. i mean zoe's incredible i mean zoe's last run gold medal winning oh, run man. like She's the back holy shit yeah those and moments to, and to be able to to be in her service in that way and celebrate with her and especially her right like just pushing the limits you know she just had her 23rd podium in a row 
How old is she? Twenty two. Twenty two. Just turned in uh, in uh, in Revy wow. during uh, the day she won. So, I just like she is so incredible. I'm so glad they chose me. Mm-hmm. I I just think she is such a force and a good person, mm-hmm. and it is truly one of the great honors of my mm-hmm. career to be her so agent. So cool. And she's going to represent our sport, our culture, whatever you want to call it, well. Yeah, yeah like I agree. there's there's people that have done it great in the past and people that haven't and she's going to be one of those people that's she's a snowboarder and Absolutely. that's what we need you know she's and she gives back in ways like she doesn't even talk about like she does so much for her community and is just and her parents and family are amazing like i really love them and um i just am am so glad again that they chose me i'm still kind of like wow yeah, she's about to go on a 10-year run of I'm a domination. massive fan. It's incredible. Uh, yeah. And I love after the Olympics, her dad had some, like, they interviewed him. Oh, my him. God, it was he's great. Like, I, well, we're pretty fucking pleased about it, or whatever he said. Would he say something like oh, that? Oh, yeah. yeah. He's the... F- yeah. He's awesome. I, I think... I think, Sean, you texted me yesterday and said, so who's the funniest dad in snowboarding? And I'm like, you by, like, a lot. I can't even think of the next funniest. So. When, you, when you have her on bomb hole... <laughs> Let's get dad in here and do a, do totally. a skit. Oh, Let's yeah. Let's get dad in here for a skit. He, he oh, said, yeah. apparently, your dad listens to the bombos and Zoe told me. He does. Might go. I, I My dad loves your show. That's what she said. Let's do it. I don't think he missed this one. So. <laughs> Let's get, should we give him the super air horn yeah. or the we regular? Should. Yeah. We should. Regular but, or super? But I mean, I think we have to shout out mom too because yeah. Robin is just. Both of them. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Her poor mom's like worried about her all the time. I don't know how you do it. Like I know how I feel just as her agent, but as a mother, it's you know. Well, mom, as as a snowboarder, she looks like she's in in such control. Your your daughter's talent is just it's it's incredible, unprecedented, and even like you know, I know. She was probably a little bit disappointed that she didn't make history in her back-to-back world champs, but that Mia Brooks had to level mm-hmm. up and do something no one had ever done again just to beat Zoe is like she is pushing mm-hmm. the entire field mm-hmm. forward in a way that is totally tangible. And she is gracious in in being celebratory mm-hmm. for Mia and anyone else mm-hmm. who has success. She's really just a, such an incredible sportswoman. Awesome. Yeah. What a good role model. That's awesome. Good, good style, too. Mm-hmm. All right, we, we could talk for, for days yeah. about Zoe. The best. Um, but we do have a guest question. I almost forgot about this. From another agent. You guys can go agent to agent talking mm-hmm. sports yes. talk. Uh, from Ryan Runke. Oh, I love Ryan. Who represents us. Who we love as well. What's up, Baumhole? Cersei, it's Runks. How are you? <laughs> I wanted to get your take on a few things based off your deep history as one of the pioneers in the agent world in action sports. You've been doing it for over two decades, and so I got a couple questions. Part one, what's the biggest challenge you face in the current state of our industry as an agent? Part two, since we've seen such a huge shift in the landscape of our industry from events, media, social, etc., can you tell us a couple main differences between being successful in your job now versus how you're, you were able to be successful 15 years ago and how do you continue to evolve your approach? 
Look forward to hearing from hearing from you. Thanks for all you've done over the last 20 years and stoked to see what you got coming up next. Bye. Leave it to Uncle Runk to ask a couple very sophisticated questions. <laughs> he definitely wrote those down. He could tell you he was reading them. <laughs> he was shuffling papers. Love you, Runk. <laughs> Um, okay, so the first part of the question, well, help me out here. Uh, the biggest hurdles you faced being an agent, I believe he asked, and then it was kind of how the landscape has changed from 15 years ago to now in being an agent. Okay, so, and how I've evolved. Mm -hmm. The biggest challenge, I mean, I th I'll be totally frank here. The biggest challenge for me was working within uh, an environment um, that was incredibly challenging with a contemporary who is I don't have to work with anymore. I would say that was really, really hard for me. Um, I had to really push down my, I had to dim my light um, just to survive it. And so, you know, I don't, I have done a lot of work in kind of letting go of, of that because it was a really toxic dynamic and I was, n was, and never will be able to be fully, um, respected in the way that I feel I deserved from this individual so I think now that I am no longer in that dynamic, I am able to accept where I sit in the space and feel good about it. Mm. Um, and I'm not here to talk negatively about anybody. Like, it was all part of my journey. And it's not my shit, right? Mm -hmm. It's his. And so... Um, to be liberated from that is really freeing. And also I've been in the game long enough now that it's like, I have respect. I, I know where I sit in the world. I know, and I'm comfortable with the power I yield. And so that feels very freeing. I don't, one, I don't care what people think about me anymore. Two, I know who I am and that I'm doing good work. And three, that I am no longer bound to a dynamic that makes me feel bad about myself. And so I think that's, that is also what has changed. I think the industry's changed a lot and I've had to evolve my business in ways that expand beyond just the traditional model. Obviously with the rise of influencer culture and the way we're doing more transactional deals for, you know, one-off posts or, you know, there's there's less of these holistic deals. Also, the industry has had a hard time across the board, not just in snowboarding, but also in skate. Um, and a lot of that goes back to, you know, the homogenization and and things being mass produced at scale and, and less kind of, you know, bespoke uh, products. Um, and so I think that has been hard. Uh, the deals have gotten smaller for sure. They're harder. Um, and you also are doing these kind of influencer-driven deals that aren't, you know, kind of long-term endorsement deals, which make it harder. And you're having to do more transactional business just to provide value and, and maximize mm -hmm. the opportunities. 
And that's tough, but it's also forced me to go outside of what I know. And, and you know, I'm working a lot um, with some musical artists since Wasserman now has a very robust music um, uh, business unit. And I'm able to package with some brands because, you know, like historically the way that I fit in within the org was in action sports, which is so different from stick and ball. And we have to be creative. We've always had to like create our own content because we're not, you know, outside of a four-year Olympic cycle. Um, we're, we don't have those same kind of corporate opportunities as the traditional, you know, stick and ball or, or traditional sports. So we've always had to be creative. And so we've kind of been a little bit of a anomaly in that way within a traditional sports agency. And so we have to be creative thinkers. And I think that's what's so great and then, you know, inevitably the ebb and flow or evolution of industry, I've had to, you know, go outside of what I know and learn more and establish some more relationships like helping Trevor Andrew or, you know, I just did a deal for Oliver Tree, who's a musical artist. And I work with this guy, Stolen Nova, Josh Landau, who's, you know, r really fun and doing interesting things in music and is also a skateboarder. So I really am enjoying... Um, finding, uh, utilizing my skill set and bringing value to kind of non-traditional action sports athletes um, in developing new business. Mm -hmm. So that's how I have um, continued to evolve my business. And also, obviously, all of the production that I've done, like I'm a relatively prolific producer. I think if you look at the work that I've done, everything from The Life of Ryan, which I packaged and sold to MTV for Ryan Sheckler, uh, you know, being Terry Kennedy, which was on BET, I developed and Great sold show. that show. Uh, you know, the mega life of Jagger Eaton, I developed and sold that show. Um, and then everything that we've done with Travis from Community Project on, uh, and Kurt Morgan, of course. And Barracks um, too, right? Yep, I packaged for the Barracks. I work closely with Steve. I've done a lot for him over the years. I consider him a dear friend and enjoy working with him. He's a true creative Uh and um, and then, you know, natural selection, which, you know, is is one of the great crowning achievements of my career, especially coming off Revy. Let's mm -hmm. let's dive into natural selection. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, so who who's the who are the founders? Um, well. It's I mean, historically, it you know, it was it was Travis's Genesis we did our first event in 2008 uh, in Jackson. So that was our our original event. Um, Liam came in later. So, you know, I mean, that's kind of the trifecta. We are where we are right now because of Travis's vision and Liam's ability to pull off the impossible. Um, and so, you know, I mean... I think Carter Westfall, who's CEO, is considered a co-founder. Um, but you know, it, it's it's again, you know, in my in my work with Travis and helping him materialize. You know, Kurt Morgan was on that production, and we used uh, a different production company for the on-site logistics in that original rendition. Um, and then inevitably it's evolved into what it is today. And it's been what, 15 years, mm -hmm. something crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about what it takes to pull off an event 
like the Revy Natural Selection because you guys are live. You're in the mountains. There's an insurmountable amount of hurdles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I just I'm still kind of processing what just went down because it was so radical. Um, I mean, it just is so much work. Um, and we're such a lean team, but, you know, I think we all are really passionate about what we do. And I think that Travis has, um, you know, this is his legacy and no one was willing to do this. Mm -hmm. And I think he really feels a responsibility to continue to elevate the space and the sport and do it in an authentic way, like rider-driven, which clearly it is. And I think if you look at any other kind of, you know, obviously, you know, we have due tour, U.S. Open is gone. Uh, we Free have ride. Free world, ride world, tour. world Tour, which is now FIS. Yeah. Uh, we have the Olympics and then we have X Games. And I just think there's nothing can e nothing comes even close to what we just did, and it's not without a lot of challenges. Um, and and Jeff Pensanero uh, is an early uh, founder in a really meaningful way, and just has like a ton of ops experience, obviously, and has been and was our home for many years, whether it was ultra natural or supernatural. Um, and he's just a great operator and, and a wonderful friend. Um, and I'm, I've been so happy to have the opportunity to work so closely um, with this team. But what really gives me the most joy is that we're creating a platform that is untethered from some of these structures um, and that the riders have a platform that are doing this kind of riding that you wouldn't really see otherwise outside of video parts. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to see it live, I mean, what we did in the level of action and excitement and nail-biting uh, conditions, and even Travis was like, before the event, he was like, you know, this is a lot. Um, and so the fact that everyone walked away completely healthy and... Um, that Liam just and and uh, the the heli operation and the resort and Yeti and Red Bull and our partners that give us the resources to do this amazing thing um, backcountry allow us uh, the autonomy to to continue to evolve the sport in a really meaningful way and that is truly one of the crowning achievements of my career. Specifically in in snowboarding, which is you know, yeah, I watched it with you know with eight people. It was mind blowing. The live feed was incredible, and I don't think it's definitely never been captured. I mean, it's been captured in previous, but this particular one that just it just hit a new level live. Like watching, you know, a video part, you see the perfect stuff, but the way that these rotor riders rode with all the it was just next well, and level. Gab, who is next. our drone operator, PhD, yeah, incredible. I mean, he is, he is the best in the world, and what he's doing is—it's just adding a whole new dimension that we never had before. And to be an innovator, 
you know, once again, like what we did with Art of Flight and, you know, Kurt was, was and is always pushing the limits of possible. And then with Gab coming in uh, and, and adding this level of uh, texture and dimension that mm -hmm. didn't exist before is really, I mean, it's like gamifying. Yeah. <laughs> it was incredible. Yeah, and it's it seems like w amongst the core uh, culture, the nucleus of snowboarding, you know, that's what people care about. You know, we have X Games, we have Dutour, and uh, but the interest, at least in our circle, that people are fired up about is, is natural selection. You know, we we've done we weren't able to do anything this year. There were some some things that came up last minute, but uh, past two years before we've done natty select watch parties you know where you get everybody together and we do a live we just film ourselves watching it and yeah. you know and everybody's coming and we're coming and it's like it's like uh you know I'd, I'd liken it to a super bowl it's like for us the natural selection every year is kind of like the snowboarders super bowl um where you get together and, and watch everything and it's you, you guys are doing a great job and i i do think the live is the key element like the 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 Alaska stuff is great, but I kind of watch it almost in passing. Like I'm, but when it's live, there's something special about the. Yeah, well, we definitely need more endemic support to continue yeah. to go live. It's a very expensive production, yeah. and we don't have you know we have some, but it's not nearly uh, robust enough. And and it is my sincere hope that, um, after this one it's a little bit of lightning in a bottle and that people can see its potential. We had incredible engagement. We had a ton of concurrence. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not supposed to share numbers <laughs> publicly, but it was an incredible success for us. And especially when you're doing something with a hold period where, you know, we can't be on a traditional network. Um, and, you know, I don't know what the business formula is, is that it's ultimately going to land for us. We would love to be live, uh, and we would love to expand. Um, but also, you know, we need more industry support in order to do that. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm hoping that the, the community really shows up for us, you know, or we experiment with it being behind a paywall or, you know, uh, um, finding a way so that we can continue to, to go live um and and add events mm -hmm. i hope the endemics are able to step up and watch it and that's you know that it's it's good to see you know another huge hurdle you know we're talking about all these big issues in snowboarding bigger you know you have you you look at it zoomed out you look at snowboarding zoomed out we're i'm looking at my feet in front of me a lot of times and you're and so it's like fist fist runs now free red world tour i just found out just now mm -hmm. fist runs the olympics this runs all the major con world cups it's, it's a federation of international skiing mm -hmm. ski racers <laughs> ski racer foundation yeah it's like you guys are the only ones that are run by snowboarders right so that's, that's, right. that's important it's something to not be taken lightly and it's something that that people need to realize uh, i mean the importance of that mm -hmm. yeah take snowboard snowboarders need to control snowboarding that's important. i agree yeah, yeah. One thing I do love about, I mean, even they own that, and we were talking earlier about brands, and there's definitely some brands that, you know, it's just data. Mm -hmm. But the, one of my struggles is, like, the Olympics had Todd Richards, who did such an amazing job representing snowboarding, talking about snowboarding the right way. Um, you know, 
it's such a hard thing. You have these some things that could be seen a certain way, but then there's always people there at those brands and at uh, you know events like that. There's always there's great employees at these you know questionable brands that love it and they're so passionate. And I think uh, you know that's one struggle I have. I don't know if you ever have that same struggle. Yeah, I mean I have it all the time, but it goes back to it's about margin and profit, yeah. and it's like we need to. S- my, my hope is, is that there can be, like that, someone one of these major brands is really going to see how important this is for the space Mm -hmm. and it will convert to sales it already does right and we have our alliance and we have a lot of industry support i don't mean to diminish um that but i really think that you know it does take someone at the top Mm -hmm. of one of these organizations to love what we're doing so much to be willing to take some risk Mm -hmm. And that's a hard thing these days, especially, you know, the economy has been hard. It's been hard on everyone, and it's probably going to get worse before it gets better, especially with some bank failures upon us. And COVID was rough. I mean, it really shut down the world, and we're all still kind of recovering in a variety of ways. And I just think that I'm hopeful um, I'm really so proud of what we did in Revy because it was so spectacular, and it was you know, we've done, you know, I don't know how many we've done now, but this one felt like we really got it right, mm-hmm. like in every way yep. for the first time, like between commentators, environment, uh, support from um, from the Heliop and from Revelstoke and uh, Selkirk Tangiers. Sorry that I, I, I needed to shout them out. Um <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I expect that, you know, Revy will be a regular stop for us. All right, we're going to take a quick break and talk to you guys about Icon Pass. They got over 50 of the best resorts in the world. The good stuff is coming your way. They got early season, limited time offers. Grab the best prices on the 23-24 season and get all the early season goods. Upon purchase of the Buy Now, Ride Now, with immediate spring access to six mountains and a total of 12 destinations by April 10th. If you buy this pass now, the immediate resorts are Big Bear, Snow Valley, Blue Mountain, Stratton, Sugarbush, and Snowshoe. By April 10th, all of the above, plus Mammoth Mountain, June Mountain, Palisades Tahoe, Winter Park, Tremblant, Canada, and Solitude, Utah. Claim big savings on child passes with purchase of an adult pass. Unlock spring's lowest prices and score renewal discounts when you renew your Icon Pass for the 23-24 season. The good stuff is coming your way at IconPass.com. All right, Circe, so you've worked with a lot of incredible talent over the years and represent a lot of incredible people. Um, I was wondering if you maybe wanted to shed some light on one or a couple of your favorites you've worked with. Well, sure. Um, I guess one who comes to mind that we haven't really talked much about yet today is Tora Bright. Um, I signed Tora <laughs> <laughs> when she was 15. Um, I mean, a child. And to be working with someone um, through the trajectory of, of her career and her incredible 
proficiency as a, an Olympian and as a snowboarder is just like truly such an honor. Um, you know, in Sochi, I was, you know, I was there and working with her when she won in Vancouver, which was so much fun. Um, and she had just worked so hard to get there. And then the next cycle was Sochi where she did three events, which has, has yet to be done male or female, I think, um, in snowboarding at the Olympics and she silvered in pipe. Um, and just the amount of work and commitment that it took to compete in three Olympic events is just like, I mean, there's a reason no one else has done it. And the fact that this incredible woman um, was able to achieve that and win a medal is just like truly, I mean, that was such a fun Olympics. Um and, you know, who knows if I'll ever get back to Russia. Yeah. <laughs> so that that is very much etched in my in some of my favorite moments. Um, and then, you know, just being a part of her life as she has moved into motherhood and um, her ongoing, you know, commitment to snowboarding and, and being a leader and just her legacy has been really fun and uh you know, I did a couple press tours with her in Australia, uh, and now she's living in, in L.A., and she's close, and I get to see her and her family and her baby, and she's got another one on the way, and she's just such an incredible mom. And to just be with a client, you know, through all of those phases of a career is just is truly uh, a gift in, um, in friendship. I consider her one of my dearest and her whole family, you know, Rowena, her sister, and they live here in Utah and her three sons, um, they come stay with us often. And Hemingway, my 10 year old daughter, uh, is besties with, uh, with Tora's nephew, Thor, who is a ripping skater and comes and skates poods and some of the local parks in my hood. So it's pretty great. Awesome. That's cool. Um, well, we've been we've been going pretty strong here, and um, one thing we haven't brought up that I think is important is the sports mastermind course that you've mm. been working on. I'd love for you to explain that to myself and our listeners. Okay, yeah, this was really spawned from uh, Sue Izzo, who is a former agent, um, <laughs> and my desire to essentially provide some kind of accessibility to information to help parents and young kids navigate the world of sponsorship and um, kind of what it takes to be a pro. I think both of us felt like there was a lot that we could do to help build foundation um, through education and information and helping kids be better prepared. Um, and also, to be totally frank, have better relationships, whether it's with their parents or with sponsors. Mm -hmm. And so Todd Richards is now uh, a partner, and we had Mikey on uh, one of our last sessions. Mm -hmm. Love um, yeah, it's just, it's truly kind of a labor of love. It's, um, you know, we do charge for it, but only because there's some hard costs. And it, we really are building community through these classes, which is really fun. You know, as I shared earlier, I've, 
I've found a couple clients through it. And I've also gifted some of my uh, development clients, you know, access purely to, you know, glean the information that we're sharing. I think that's one thing that we've kind of been missing in our community is um, is also, and, and Mikey and I have talked about this a lot, the need for transitional counseling, like post-career. Yeah. Wow. I think that, you know, we we have all, you know, these these incredible young talents and, you know, snowboarding and, and skateboarding in these spaces are, are really a minefield. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, of um, indulgence and there's a lot of, um, you know, thrill seeking and living life on the edge and adrenaline and, and all of, and fame. And with that comes some challenges and being able to assist my community in a meaningful way, not necessarily just my clients, gives me a lot of joy. And in even talking to Sue and Todd, you know, they love it too. Like they're so, like after your session, like we just hung up and we were just like, oh my God, that was so fun. Mm -hmm. And to be able to interact with parents and help them have better relationships with their children and be better prepared and and help create a little more kind of texture around uh, what good parenting is with a, a kid who has potential so that they um, can can also you know help them and 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 be helpful to them in their trajectory but also you know create a little space for you know, where is that uh, balance in being supportive and also maybe being a little much or potentially damaging to opportunity because of, you know, over being a little frothy? Yeah. Oh, there's some parents that could use. use oh, yeah. I can think of. Right I mean, <laughs> just being on for the short amount of time I was on, I was so I felt so happy for these kids because I saw, I mean, of course, the, the parents, you're really training the parents and the kids in a way. But also what I saw was these topics that we should be taught in school. Right. Like how do you handle a bully? What are, the, what's, what are the ways you navigate relationships? These kids, whether they turn pro or not, they're going to, they're learning all these life skills. I mean, that's yep. what struck exactly. me. It was really just life skills. And, I'm, and I also had a, a thought coming in, I was watching all the kids' faces, and these kids are what? Like, there's five to older, 20? I don't know. But I was expecting the young kids to be like, ah, playing, you know, picking up. They're just glued to the screen, which I found was amazing. Yeah, so, yeah I, I think. pretty blown away. Yeah, I think we talk a lot about, and, and you were a part of this discussion, and you were such a perfect representative of the dialogue of, like, that, you know, an abundance mindset as opposed to a scarcity mindset, and that you know and we, and we get into the the 10,000 hours and and just like managing expectations cuz you've got kids who are living in a social media world where it's just like you know they want the endorphin hit and the popularity and then you know they're dealing with so many social issues um and just being able to speak to that in a really positive way and give them tools mm -hmm. and their family tools in how to navigate that in a healthy way i think is is just I guess it really is it's it's almost selfish in how much I enjoy it <laughs> because I feel like I am participating in the next gen. Yeah. And uh 
and uh, you know we follow all the kids and then and you know some of them are like really you see it yeah. you see the attitude shift and you know we mm-hmm. teach them things like you know how to deal with toxicity in social media mm-hmm. as well as you know b- you know best practices mm-hmm. right yeah. and and the some accountability on the parents' part to make sure that they're not um, endangering their children's health and happiness yeah. through living in the algorithms. Yeah. It felt really healthy. I was so impressed. Yeah. Well, so yeah. where can people find it if they're, they're interested in signing up? Well, you can follow us on Sports Management Mastermind on Instagram. Uh, and then we offer courses like three or four times a year. So just follow us and you can sign up. There's an email enrollment. And then, we, you know, we, we essentially do like a blog um, that's full of all kinds of information. Um, and then we offer, you know, some one-on-ones for, for parents and kids who want more post-class. And it's, you know, it's it's a slow burn. Like this is something that we feel um, we're really doing because we love it. And, you know, we do it when we can. So yeah. come join us. Yeah, I love that you say you feel like, what did you, what did you call yourself, selfish for doing it? <laughs> yeah. Because I love that. I mean, one of the things I mentioned to the kids and I saw you doing was the mentorship. But you're also yeah. gaining that same by teaching, which is really sweet to hear. Yeah, and it is yeah. a little self-serving yeah. in that, like, I think, you know, this is how I want to introduce clients yeah. to the potential of working with sure. me because they have the fundamentals already. I yeah. don't have to be like, okay, do you know mm-hmm. how, you know, what's important <laughs> here, right? Yeah. And it makes it a lot easier to um, just naturally start, you know, developing uh, a mindset and an attitude and an opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's good stuff. And then you just said, what did you say about mentorship too, Mike, too, about uh, when you mentor somebody, you're also getting mentored? Yeah, right? that's my view. I mean, I mentor some kids, but it's always eye to eye, and you learn just as much as the mentor. The, the kids are mentoring you. It's equal. There is, there is a mentor. Usually there's a problem, but through the process, you're gaining equally if you're doing it right, I think. Totally. A couple, um, a couple Miyagi's around here just <laughs> dropping knowledge on me all day long. That's what happens th- when you hit fifty. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> holy smokes! All right, uh, midlife. We, we only got so many days left on this earth. So absolutely, got to get it in. <laughs> time, time. Yep. All right, so we're gonna get into hot takes. One of my favorite parts of the show. Uh, hot takes is presented by Oakley. I recently started wearing a helmet. I run the Oakley Mod One Pro. Pairs nicely with the Oakley Line Miner goggle. I go over the helmet mm-hmm. like that, um, and um, I'm happy with a great low low light, incredible product. Uh, they support the show. They support me. So uh, feel free to support Oakley. I'm down for a box too anytime. Okay. <laughs> yeah, get you a let's get go. you a box. Let's get let's get him a box. <laughs> All <Hey> right, Nico. <laughs> yeah, where are you at? <laughs> Nico, let's get Mikey laced out. <laughs> All right, so um, we're, we always started off with uh, Goat and or Michael Jordan, however you say, however you want to take this, both male and female in snowboarding. Who you got? I mean, Zoe and Trav. Solid choices. Solid choices. I'm going to say biased. But A little biased, but hey. But you also can't, you can't very argue. valid choices. cannot argue with that. I mean... Only I the like best. It. I can only do a top ten, so. So well, I'm wondering. Yeah. I think, I don't know if Travis. 
Zoe's probably got picked before, but Travis gets picked all the time. But yeah, that, I love that. Um, we kind of talked about this already. Ardor Sports, one of them. Next one, who who's the most underrated in your opinion? Underrated snowboarder, like holistically, overall, just in general? I think to you. I, I always think it's to you. You know, maybe somebody... Maybe underrated or underappreciated. Underappreciated. Yeah, underappreciated's good, you know? I mean, I guess I would say, like, just observing Dustin Craven's. Mm-hmm. Like, Craven. I never really had a lot of visibility on Dustin's skill level, but having a front row seat these last two years, like, I'm just blown away. And also just, like, his his spirit like he's funny he's witty he's also like sometimes you're like was that a joke yeah. or was that serious like and he like gave a speech at the, this last um kind of closing ceremony and it just blew me away like he's just a solid dude and an incredibly talented writer and i don't know that he's been really recognized as much as he probably should be yeah Great answer. He's a ripper. I also like, you know, worthy of mention, like Mickle. Mm. Oh yeah. He's incredible. Another I think, great answer. Yeah. yeah. Love Okay. Steel or powder? Steel? He has in like rails. <laughs> oh, powder. I mean <laughs> there's no question there. I'm interested in this next one. Best style ever. Oh man. I'm going to go with Nico. Solid choice. Nicholas Mueller, great answer. Okay. Uh, best snowboard video ever made, in your opinion? Art of Flight. Biased, sorry. but also a great answer. Sorry about it. Don't um, be sorry. I loved it. I just think it transcended in a way that nothing ever has and put us on the map. It's funny because I. Do you guys know who Ruben Ostland is? He's the director of Triangle of Sadness, and he did uh, Force Majeure, the. The film. He's a Swedish filmmaker who now is. He got it just nominated for an Academy Award, mm. and I DM'd him just a couple days ago, just letting him know how much I love. He's he is an incredibly talented director, and I just texted him. You all should watch his films. Um, you know, they're they're a lot about you know like societal you know issues and wealth disparity and just very interpersonal relationships. Just really really smart. So I slid up in his DMs like at midnight on <laughs> Oscar night and was just like, I just want you to know how much I love your work. And the only reason that you didn't get that you didn't win is because of your anti-capitalist message. And you, you can't win with the capitalists. And uh, I said, you know, uh, I had some experience in film and that I had done Art of Flight, uh, EP'd Art of Flight. And he hit me right back and wow. said that he loved Art of Flight. So, wow. you know, that's just like a microcosm it's of amazing. like, you know, we, we did something just totally radical. And, you know, there's aspects of the film I don't love, but overall it was a really I think it project. was groundbreaking. I mean, yeah, I fight the good fight on Art of Flight all the time. Yeah. I liked Roadkill too, but also Biased. I was in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Both great answers. <laughs> best graph, Best snowboard graphic ever. Oh, man. I don't know. Maybe Blue Kitty. Jamie Lynn. Solid. Very acceptable answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's some that are not acceptable. <laughs> that was acceptable. Um, okay. 
It's kind of like you're entitled to your opinion, but your opinion's wrong sometimes. That's <laughs> how I feel. That's how I feel with some of these answers. What is your favorite? Uh, my fa- Mine's actually, this is a really random one. Um, and somebody brought it up and had the same one, which kind of baffled me. I actually don't know the name of the board, but uh, Seth Hewitt in Shakedown rides this. It's a Capita, and I think there's a worm on the bottom, and it's green. And I don't know the name of it, but I always just love the way it filled the space. I always mm-hmm. like um, graphics of, of like you know, obviously there's the sword and the kitty and the I like like right. like you know big. To me, this sounds biased and unacceptable. It it, it but this was before I wrote for. <laughs> I know, I'm just joking. What is yours? Uh, I gotta go with Noah Slaznik with the skateboard. Skateboard, yeah. So he's got the Noah's Ark graphics. And he's holding on to the bag and the snowboard, and it's just mm. so classic. Yeah, Andy did one too. And they were, the Lamar, that was yeah. very close. Yeah. And, and I would say Terry's wooden sword was it, pretty sick. It, it was, I w- that was kind of uh, in my mind, but. Everybody says sword, though. You don't need to I'd go with Noah because Noah is uh, just, he was just magic. Mm. The other one we got to talk about that I always think about is the Tarquin. Oh, I oh, had yeah. that board, the baby yeah. blue top sheet shotgun sauna. So good. I had that board. The board sucked, and I did not care because it looked so mm-hmm. dope. <laughs> just looks. Cool. It was one of the only boards that came cut down, mm-hmm. like we cut them down too. So they mm-hmm. were super on point. Yeah, yeah. good shit. Was Great that board. a no high box situation? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No I high remember, box. I remember that era. Mm-hmm. You're a big part of me wanting to ride like that yeah well i always had high backs because <laughs> i needed a little forward lean to yeah. get some torque yeah hold that heel edge yeah mm-hmm. okay so we're gonna keep things moving on favorite favorite band slash musical artist Ooh. all time sure time dealer's choice oh. by dealer i mean your choice one and only oh billy holiday that's nice mm. timeless timeless Acceptable answer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, if you go heliboarding with three people, just good times. You're just whacking pow turns. <laughs> Who are you taking? Alive or no longer with no, us? Anybody. No, anybody. Celebrities, yeah. people that are dead. Okay. So, like, this is characters. like who, your dinner. Dream people. Yeah. yeah. Well, Craig, Kelly, yep. of course. Mm-hmm. Um, can I shred with Obama? Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. That would be some fun conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one more spot. I'm going to say Victoria Jaloux. Ooh, that's a wonderful answer. I would love to see her and Craig yeah. carving down the mountain. Yeah. She's so underappreciated, I think. Yeah. We're There's a lot about. more. I'm kind of regretting the Obama, but. You could change it up. We're still here. I think Obama's a good pick. Yeah. I think you stick with it. Yeah. Let's wrap it up with the last question. Worst trend. Worst trend. TikTok. Mm, great answer. That's awesome. They're all great answers. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. And then, you know, we're, we pretty much we pretty much did it. But I, I kind of, while I got you here, I got a question that I want to ask you, too. Because I think about, I, I say this on the show pretty publicly. Uh, and I have no data backing this up whatsoever. <laughs> and uh, I think you could probably fill me in on why but i remember you you said earlier you're like oh the contracts have been getting smaller and and the way i see it is when i look at like you know pros and like maybe the early 2000s it was the the pool of riders was small Mm -hmm. and and the pie was maybe a similar size but now there's just a giant influx of talent 
there's just way more talented snowboarders than there ever has been, and the pie is the same size. And so I, that is my theory on why it's harder to make a living snowboarding now, and I don't know if that's right or not, but that's my theory. Uh, I think the pie has gotten smaller. The pie has gotten smaller. Yeah, okay. and I think that just goes back to, you know, you look at, like, the airlines or all of these major corporations who are just, it's like squeezing as much profit as you can out of the business and marketing tends to be, you know, one of the things that you can trim from. And as a result, also, you know, and I talk about this a lot, um, there's like price fixing happening. It's like all of a sudden, Nobody is paying anybody very well, so you lose your leverage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good point. I see it the same way. Yeah. It seems like the top, there's like the top five, top 10, top 15 people in in our sport or 20. I don't know how, what it is. Let's just say 20 are like, they're doing great. Maybe top, like there's like a small percentage that are that are doing great. And then and then the rest, it's it's like very middle-class kind of pay. Yeah, it's like stuff. wealth disparity, right? Yeah. There's like five people that make mm -hmm. all, you know, 90%, and then everyone else gets the crumbs. Mm -hmm. There's no kind of middle range. Yep. And, and it's hard. But then the, the people up top, they, I mean, they, they're worth it too, right? Because like, they move the needle. Yeah, so absolutely. Then it, it's, it's a tricky situation. Yeah, there's nothing worse, though, when you have a brand who's like, well, we give all our money to the person who... So we don't have anything left over for anybody else. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like. All right. It's time to get into the pub beer crapshoot. They support the show. You should support them. Uh, if you're thinking about getting um, completely annihilated responsibly, um, choose pub beer. Here we go. Welcome to the pub beer crapshoot. Talk about a brand. That's, they support a bunch of snowboarders. It's mm -hmm. good. It's good. Um, so if you could just go ahead, seriously, and roll that those two dice, I will tell you uh, what you land on correlates to ten, uh, nine. Oh, nine. Oh, I like this one. Okay. This is a good. This is a perfect question for right now. Nine. Perfect. Name one thing still on your career bucket list. Ooh. I really want to make this film project, which is. I guess I'll just go ahead and share it. Sure. Uh, Ride or Die, which is basically taking like state of the art action in every genre possible, paired with like horror or Twilight Zone like episodes. Mm. Are we going Netflix? Are we going HBO? What are we talking here? I'd be fine with either. Mm. But okay. yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, my initial instinct on that question is, like, being nominated for a major film or television mm. award. Mm -hmm. You know, if you need an actor, Mikey's facial expressions are unbelievable. I like to act, and I will jump off some shit He's with zombies st chasing me. Yeah. <laughs> He's a stuntman actor. I know. Twofer. I mean, you're on the list of That's collaborators. Good. Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> and it's funny, we've been talking about something similar, like, how do we script this but not make it corny or yeah. make it so corny? That it's hilarious. Yeah. So. I don't know. Is it bad for me to sh put that out on the river of ideas? No, I think it's just motivating. Okay. Now I have to do it. Yeah, now you got to do it. You said it. You got to do it. It's like when you claim a trick on the jump. Oof. 
Damn it, I yeah. wish I said 360. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> if anyone yeah. tries to take it, I can reference back to my bomb mm. hole. It's true. It's my IP. Mm-hmm. All right, so, um, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much been it. Last things last is if you want to uh, do some thank yous before we wrap it up, and then we'll put a bow on it. Uh, sure. Um, I would love to thank my family for all of the support that they give me and my incredible husband and my daughter Ava and Hemingway. Uh, Ava's a soccer player at Vanderbilt and just crushing it. And Hemingway's a ballerina who just got into SAB, which is a big deal. So I'm so proud. Um, I want to thank my parents for supporting me and my weird and random trajectory, especially at this stage in their lives. I just have such deep appreciation for them. Uh, my sisters, who I love dearly, um, I'd really like to thank Wasserman and Ethan, who works with me um, and is relatively new to my team, but it's just been incredible. Um, Michelle Kimbrough, who was with me for a very long time and just had her first child, which is so exciting. Um, oh my God, there's so many people I want to thank. I could be here for hours. Uh, every single one of my clients for believing in me, Wasserman for the ongoing support and an amazing place to work. Um, Bob McKnight at you know, at Quick, who believed in me at a young age, and I was the first Roxy girl in North America, so that was a fun chapter, um, and has been a great mentor and is a good man. Um, and you know, Lisa Hudson, who does boarding for breast cancer, and is is a wonderful friend who I love dearly. Um, man. I mean, there are just so many. I know this is the one I'm going to come back and be like, oh, God, why didn't I have my list? But um, Mauricio for driving me here today, (laughs) picking me up and taking me to breakfast. (laughs) The whole crew at Absinthe. um, Love Justin and Brewsty and and Shane. um, And all of the people that have supported me and been there for me and, and all of the wins and sad days I feel like I have this entire community to hold me up and I'm incredibly grateful and so thank you for having me here today and getting to talk story well thanks so much CRC for coming on the show it's been a blast Uh, thanks for everything you do for snowboarding and uh, lastly I want to say thank you to all of our listeners all of our supporters Patreon members sponsors Uh, we really appreciate you guys and uh, Mike thanks for being a guest guest host today my pleasure thank you both for letting me be here I loved it Well, appreciate you guys. We got an episode for you next Wednesday. Hope you guys have a great week. Over and out from the bomb hole. Thanks. Love you. That was a great show. Seriously?